Star Trek, The Next Generation. This is the podcast of Whitney Seibold and William Bibiani. Our ongoing mission, to watch every episode of Star Trek in production order. Why? Because we're nerds! <laughs> Tonight's episode, Encounter at Farpoint. Tonight, welcome to the Enterprise. The 24th century begins in a two-hour world premiere television movie. Go to yellow alert. Hostel is now beginning to overtake us, sir. The classic Star Trek legend continues. With an all-new crew, an all-new adventure, Star Trek The Next Generation. Captain's Log, Stardate 411.53.7. So we're in the past? No, we're in the distant future now. We've had six start stardates before this. Yeah, but this is 411. This isn't just six. We're up to 41. We're jumping way ahead. Oh, my apologies. Yeah, this this is... uh, I didn't get the decimal points right. Welcome back to All Our Yesterdays, our Star Trek podcast where we're talking about every Star Trek in the correct order. Uh, My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a... Died in the wool Trekkie going way, way back, and I'm really excited now. (laughs) (laughs) William, introduce yourself. My name is William Bibiani. Uh, Everyone calls me Bibbs, and I like Trek a lot, and Whitney is really excited now. You can feel the... (laughs) We were recording at our usual time, uh, a.k.a. way too late in the the night, like... Mm. We will not get to bed tonight. And Whitney is usually like, I'm a zombie. And now it's like, we're talking about the pilot episode of Star Trek Next Generation. He's like a kid. You know, like you're like on Christmas when like, you know, listen, 1201 is technically Christmas morning and you just want to like knock oh, on your no, parents' I, door. I was never that kid. I always w- had to wait until everybody was You are out, when Star but, uh, Trek is involved. Uh, look, even if like Encounter at Farpoint was under the tree, I would still wait. No, but, you, uh I, I, when when it comes to Christmas, I would. I, we, we took it very seriously at our house. Uh, but we're up to Encounter at Farpoint, which uh, is the pilot episode for Star Trek The Next Generation, which is probably my favorite TV show of all time. Uh, I, I really love Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, it's not just nostalgia. It's one of those shows that like sort of... Taught me lessons and stuff. Sure, it's important but, to you. It's it shaped who you are. But it was also, you know, a big part of like fandom because I also went to like conventions and bought the shit and had the toys and the trading cards and all that. Uh, I memorized all the facts. And yeah, these these characters are just sort of a, a big part of my life. So I'm excited to go through them. Not just because I get to uh, sort of watch these episodes again. Mm-hmm. I get to reassess this show because it's been a while since I've gone through the entire series mm. uh, and I get to share it with you. I get to share my enthusiasm with you and I, I am hoping you don't hate it because well, I know that's a possibility. You know, um, we, we've talked we've talked a bit, we've talked a lot about your fandom uh, yeah. for Star Trek and my sort of casual uh, interest in yeah. Star Trek over the years. Um, as I said, various versions of Trek have earned my favor over the years, some more than others. Um, until we did the show, I had never seen most of the original series. I had seen all of the animated series, but that's a, pr- or I think most of the animated series, but like, that's a pretty quick jaunt. There was only a few yeah. hours of that and all of it is said and done. Uh, I had once when I was unemployed, burned through all of Deep Space Nine in like two or three weeks, mm. which was 
I was I was in a rough spot. That's a lot. Of, that's a big time sink. But um, it, it's a big time sink. But you know, Deep Space Nine is a very interesting show. Oh, it's there's, great. there's like thirty regular characters on Deep Space Nine, and they go to some pretty I'm, wacky. I'm places. very looking forward to getting into Deep Space Nine. Yeah. That's that's a while down the road. Uh, but this was the Trek that I grew up with. This was mm. the one that was on TV all the time. Uh, Star Trek: The, uh, the Next Generation wasn't on a network it was on syndication and so any mm. network that wanted to buy the rights could put it up there yeah. and it wasn't on like one time a day usually you know there would be uh you know like oh um night court is on at like eight o'clock on thursdays or whatever and until it would they had enough episodes that was the only time a week you could see it star trek could be on any fucking time you could just yeah, start- any you just you could just Throw on Channel 13, boom, Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek was uh, owned by Paramount at this point. Uh, they were doing the movies, and um, they uh, be- Paramount wasn't beholden to a network. The UPN wouldn't exist for a couple more years yet. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, Gene Roddenberry was able to sort of broker this pretty sweet deal where they were just new in syndication, which is, I don't know how common it is in TV, but uh, it mm. was new for Star Trek. It, it became more commonplace, but Star Trek was the first, like, big one. Yeah. That was the, like, was big so, franchise thing. Everyone's watching it. Yeah, they, uh, and it it was, had, like, a real marquee value. It's weird that a network didn't have it. Yeah, here in uh, in Los Angeles, it ran on Channel 13, KCOP, and, yeah. uh, uh and they would rerun it. They would play the same episode twice a day. Mm-hmm. They'd, they'd debut the new episode at like 7 in the seven or 7.30 in the evening. And then they'd run it again like after the news at like 11 at night. And I might be just remembering it wrong, but I'm pretty sure they aired it on weekends too, like during the day or something I, I like think that. they did. Yeah. And there was there was a time in the 90s where they would rerun uh, the original series. Mm-hmm. And when Deep Space Nine came on, they'd run them all on a block. Yeah. It was... It was a good uh, good time if you wanted a lot of Star Trek. Well, and again, it's important to remember that, uh, you know, in, in the 80s, and until actually, again, relatively recently in the grand scheme of things, uh, what was on TV was whatever happened to be on at the moment. And so if Star <laughs> Trek just happened to be on, mm. and what happened to be on on the other four channels you got, unless you had cable, which even cable didn't have that many channels, all, all told back then, uh, then you watched Trek. Yeah. And Trek was... Pretty good. I watched a lot of Trek when I was younger. I had my favorites. I had stuff that I really, really liked about it. Mm. Um, I was never particularly devoted to it. I could take it or leave it, but uh, there are def- I have definite fond memories of certain, you know, big cliffhangers, various characters, mm. and I remember watching this. Did I watch it when it first aired? Probably not, but then again, I might have, because I actually have some pretty vivid memories of watching stuff when I was... When this came out, 86? 87. 87? So September, it was five. September 87. I yeah. remember watching this. I think I probably did watch this when it aired. It was okay. a big deal. I know my brother was a huge geek, so he was probably watching it. So I probably yeah. watched it with him. And, um, you know, I, I've, I haven't revisited the pilot in its entirety since the last time I got it on TV in a rerun, like probably in the mm-hmm. 90s. And I remember thinking to myself, is this good <laughs> or is this merely our introduction and yeah when we, um, we've, we review pilots a lot and cancel hmm. too soon and it's important to remember that a pilot episode has two jobs one it has to be a good story but even if it's not a good story what it has to do is introduce the series give you the premise give you the characters and give you a sense of what's to come, give you a promise yeah. of what's what's going on in the future. And I wasn't sure when I pressed play 
on this this time mm-hmm. what I was going to get. Is it is it a bad introduction? Is it a good introduction but a bad episode? Is it a good episode but a bad introduction? I honestly wasn't sure. Okay. Uh, and now, of course, I have my ideas, but right. I'm curious. Okay. I want to let you talk. Uh, well, first, a, a little bit of background. Um, Gene Roddenberry uh, is the creator of the show, um, yeah. and uh, he co-wrote the pilot with DC Fontana, who came yeah. back from the original show. Or rather, DC uh, Fontana wrote the pilot, and Gene Roddenberry Gene wrote Rodden it and ca- slapped his and name re- on it and took off it. DC Fontana's name. DC Fontana mm-hmm. went to the Writers mm-hmm. Guild for arbitration, and now both of their names are on it. Yeah. Uh, Gene Roddenberry wasn't the kindest man. Uh, he, he took <laughs> credit for a lot. Um, he owns a partial right to, or I guess his estate now, but yeah. he owned the partial rights to the Star Trek theme song because he wrote lyrics that were never used. Never used. Now, if you want to hear Nichelle Nichols singing the Star Trek theme song with those lyrics that Roddenberry mm-hmm. wrote, you can get it on her record. Nice. Nichelle Nichols uh, released an album at one point. I think most of the cast members did. I'm fond of, uh, you can also look it up, I think it's on YouTube somewhere. Jack Black was on a podcast once and he mm-hmm. did the song. Okay. And he, Jack Black, as you can, as you probably know, he's not just a, a, a great comedian and a very good actor, actually, but he's actually a great singer. Like, he's really good. Mm. So, uh, yeah, he, he belts that thing. Yeah. And the lyrics to the original Star Trek theme song are stupid lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> they have nothing to do with anything. <laughs> They're really quite bad. Mm. But damn it, Roddenberry gets that check. Yeah, he, he, he got partial rights. So every time the song, the theme song played, even though they didn't use his lyrics, yeah. he got a piece of the royalties. Well, it's important he, to remember uh, that in the interim, like between tracks, yeah. Roddenberry was not doing great. Like, no, in me- fact, all uh, of his projects in between failed. We've recovered yeah. a f- like one or two on Cancel Too Soon. Yeah, um, Spectre was a supernatural yeah, Spe- series he did. Spectre was a, a, a series he tried. There That's were a really bunch good of, pilot. You should check that out if you haven't yeah, seen it. He tried pitching a bunch of shows. Um, it wasn't until he started getting gigs uh, doing like speaking tours yeah. at college campuses and at Star Trek conventions that he actually started making some, some real money yeah. off of Star Capitalizing Trek. Capitalizing on uh, the... On yeah. His, yeah. And... Um, he was, uh, after the uh, general box office disappointment of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which he had a lot to do with, he was kind of taken out of the movies. So 2, 3, and yeah. 4, Roddenberry didn't have anything to do with. Very, uh, very little. Yeah, he was he, technically like, a consultant, but I think that was mostly an honorary title. Yeah, and, and yeah. as such, you know, a lot of these stories focus on the characters and the Enterprise, and we're going to sort of continue on with the TV series, as, mm-hmm. as the movies ought to do. Uh, and... During the production of Star Trek IV, which we did in our last episode, uh, they were already working on uh, another Star Trek series, yeah. um, and there, you know you can. There's plenty on record as to like the actual germ of of the start of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah, uh, but, but yeah, the movies is, were making big bank in the '80s, and they yeah. wanted more of it, and they didn't want to keep shelling out for Shatner and Nimoy and yeah, Forrest Kelly. So they the, uh, wanted to yeah. pay a cheaper version. So yeah, they said, so we want to do a new Star Trek, but we can't afford the talent. Also, they're getting old. We're dealing with that in the movies. We can't do a show with them. Yeah. And Gene Roddenberry said, okay, uh, now is our chance to finally do Star Trek uh, better. He figured that he wa- he wanted to improve all of what he saw as the mistakes of the original show. Of which there were many. Uh, yeah. Um, we talked the, about like them the, at length. Yeah, the idea that, and, and a lot of things that fans noticed uh, when the show was being rerun in the 70s. Why is the captain of the ship beaming down to a dangerous planet every week? How about we have the first officer lead away teams yeah, and the captain it, stays on the it, ship? Isn't that kind uh, of like a yeah. bad, like if you want you want like... Should we really be risking the captain constantly? Like, it seems like a weird choice. <laughs> there were some ideas that were shot down. Uh, they, they knew they wanted it to be, uh, Gene Roddenberry wanted it to be in the future, like, 
the future of Star Trek. Several, he wanted it several centuries hence, and uh, Mm -hmm. one of the ideas was to have it be the Enterprise 7. Uh, Okay. This was before Star Trek 4 established that there could be NCC 1701A. Yeah. So they were going to have it be, I guess... Number 7. Number 7, or G, and... uh, so it's going to be centuries hence, and the idea, some of the ideas that were being kicked around, oh, it's going to be Kirk's and Spock's great-great-grandchildren are going to be on this new Enterprise. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah, I eventually, eventually they kind of, yeah, yeah. and they, 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 that was just kicked around. They never yeah. put any sort of serious consideration into yeah. that. But they well, said, the, okay, all we these need things are a, interesting, but, you yeah. know, they're, um, they're, yeah. The five-year mission, he figured, was a little bit too limiting, yeah. uh, especially when it comes, and he's thinking practically about going on a five-year voyage like yeah. on a, a ship at sea or something well, but also like and, uh, by, by this point trek clearly had legs and you yeah. didn't just want to just have but five the, years uh, and then they're done so they, the for of, they change it to their ongoing mission the, their continuing mission continuing is mission, the, the word uh, the word they use in the the theme um but the idea was if this is going to be a long-term mission how are you going to have a family this is you're not going to want to devote your whole life to your career necessarily yeah so we need to have a much bigger ship yeah. we need to have the enterprise be uh something that families can stay on yeah it's not, such, just, it's not just it's not just the 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 crew. It's like because you know if you've ever been to like a military base, for example, mm. everyone works there, but there's also like places for families to live and for everyone to yeah, take their, yeah. their loved ones. It's, and, it's like it's like yeah, the, the they have a life. It's like the military base, but it's on the ship, and yeah, uh, yeah and there's now schools on the ship, and there's recreation on the ship, yeah. and there's uh, you know not just a galley. There's actually like restaurants and other things to mm. do on the ship besides just the operations. And if you think about it, that makes it extremely irresponsible to take that ship into battle yeah ever it's, it's, it's got photon torpedoes and phasers still i, but I understand having like ha- well i understand having defense mechanisms because you know anything could be out there but like when you're actively seeking out yeah like adventure <laughs> and like you know going yeah, to like yeah. oh we, we need to really you know poke the bear in the neutral zone for some strategic purpose and i'm like how many children are on board the ship they, these are not. These aren't even military they, personnel. Uh, these, these are like so yeah, these they, are just people. They event, the numbers on the actual uh, 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 crew of the original Enterprise was always a, a little bit in flux. It was some anywhere Somewhere. between like two fifty and four hundred. I think was, yeah. was sort of the the estimation. Uh, in Next Generation, they said they wanted like about a thousand. Okay, this is, this is a ship that can house a thousand people, which is a lot. It's a big ship. Yeah, uh, and. The uh, the idea is all of the kids. They're not just like kids touring the galaxy. They're family of people. Of oh, crew, of course, but of crew but people. Regardless, yeah. it seems irresponsible. Like you wouldn't mm. like. Okay, like, I, and I know the Federation is only like partially militaristic, but mm. when there are military conflicts, the Federation is who handles it. And so it's like, okay, the Cardassians are attacking Seta Alpha Five or whatever. And uh, okay, <laughs> a so, dead desert planet. Why yeah, are they attacking? I, 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 because they want those worms. Anyway, uh, so listen, we gotta go. We gotta go fight them off. All right. Uh, so we're gonna bring. Okay. So I want uh, Jenkins, Zetar, Florniak, and uh, bring your kids. And bring your kids. Yeah. Gonna, wait, what? Yeah, we're just gonna bring them in the ship. Well, the, and uh, if the Cardassians attack the ship, they could die too. Really incentivize you. The uh, and the idea of this new enterprise, though, was they were very much more explicitly in a ship of exploration. Yeah, whereas and diplomacy. Uh, yeah, the the other the enterprise from the original show and from the movies was a lot more like a submarine. It was it had a lot of harsh angles, mm. uh, steel floors. Uh, it wasn't a very uh, like interesting or relaxing space. No, it was a place to work. It mm. was a place to like if you think about people, you know, exploring like the far reaches 
of the seven seas mm. in the uh, in the history of mankind. Uh, the further you get away from civilization, the less comfortable you'll get. Yeah. You can't retrofit things as easily. You can't restock your supplies mm. as easily. Comfort is not a factor. This is a bunch of hard-living professionals yeah. who yeah. are ready for anything. And a lot of episodes of Star Trek were about... I mean, at least tangentially about like sort of the isolation of this. How far away are we? We're on the edge of the known galaxy. Mm-hmm. You know, there was that element of it as well. Yeah. This is a bit more homey. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and I, I do like the design. It's it's like sort of relaxing purples and grays. It's very eighties, and uh, it's also carpeted, which is yeah, that, that a, a big dramatic change. The ship is carpeted on the inside, yeah, uh, which has got to make the sound crew a lot really happy. Yeah, yeah. There's not <laughs> clomping feet on hardwood floors. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's it's sort of a more comfortable space. Additionally, uh, this is the instance where uh, Roddenberry put down what is known as Roddenberry's rule. And that was the writers weren't allowed to have interpersonal conflict. Mm. That was a big part of the between original the show. Not between, on the, on the, in the is, writer's room. There was a tie interpersonal. That is between the main characters. Um, yeah. Which is weird yeah. because that's what Drek is based on. Like that, that's the what, whole bones yeah. and bones and Spock relationship that everyone like, mm. I mean, and Kirk to a different degree, but like that whole relationship breaks that rule. Absolutely, it does. And yeah. and Roddenberry said he he became like Roddenberry essentially drank his own Kool Aid more or yeah. less. Like a lot of people were writing essays about how Star Trek was this sort of idealized version of the future, and he had ideas about that and how uh, you know this is going to be sort of a, a post nationalistic world where just the whole world works together and technology yeah. is good and uh, and ev- and everybody gets along. And he actually wanted to sort of and put in that TNG, in. And the... they clarify it's a post capitalistic world, although even that's a little inconsistent. It's, it's yeah, it doesn't all. My guess is. Like they have money if, oh, but only if they're dealing with capitalistic societies, they don't use yeah. it among themselves. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Roddenberry wanted to put it in the series Bible that there wasn't going to be interpersonal conflict. And that of course made a lot of writers unhappy because that's the only way they knew how to write. And yeah. so uh, as such a lot of, you'll find it in a lot of the first season, it's a lot of uh, team getting together to problem solve right now and, there, I, are, and I, there aren't a lot of episodes about individual characters that wouldn't come until a little bit later in the show yeah which is weird for me because that seems like and again this is and i know for a fact the next generation would end up doing this because i remember watching mm. a lot of episodes but it seems to me that the the issue that a lot of writers would have with that is oh no there's no conflict there's plenty of conflict Within the characters themselves, exactly. Yeah, everyone, yeah. every it's not the, the characters aren't perfect. They're just working together in some relative form of harmony. You know, in the, in the crisis, the tensions might raise, but they're all working together to solve a goal. They are aspirational figures. Mm. Individually, they all have flaws. And and at once the series eventually start dealing with like okay here's an episode where Picard deals with one of his flaws here's yeah. an episode where Riker deals with one of his flaws where Troy deals with one of her flaws then it starts feeling like a real show because until you acknowledge that there's at least some form of personal conflicts to deal with I can see being stifled I can see mm-hmm. feeling really stymied by what was available there and it's seeming. Hard to write for it. The other thing that I think is interesting about that approach, and this is something that I don't think was really a thing on American television then, and I still don't think it's particularly a thing as much now, although I could definitely have seen it in TV from other countries like uh, uh, Japan. There's a whole slice of life uh, type series here. But um, media 
serialized television and even stories in general don't have to be about conflict. That's a very Western concept no, it's of storytelling. Not just Western. I feel like that's that's something that was codified kind of recently mm-hmm. in terms of of uh, screenwriting tropes. Yeah. The, the, that, the that, idea that there has that to be a, some formula. sort of yeah some yeah. sort of interpersonal conflict in order for drama to take place and that's or, not strictly true it, it's yeah. it's usually a pretty good recipe for drama but that's if you once you start taking this idea that there's only one good way to tell stories and I don't care how general your rule is mm. once you start taking the idea that if you don't follow this rule you're not telling a good story you have shut down a massive creative center in your brain mm. and you are ignoring the very real fact that there are other ways to do it. And there are a lot of wonderful stories out there that aren't so much about external conflict between people. And it is more about a sense of place. Mm. It's more about a mood. It's more about uh, contemplation, inner, inner workings of the human mind yeah, and yeah. spirit. Uh, and all of these things can be absolutely riveting as long as you're open to actually working with their strengths and not fighting them and trying to make them more like the cookie cutter yeah, outline yeah. you've been given uh, in your a, screenwriting class. A, a good example of this, this came after Next Generation. Actually, I don't know when, when it debuted. I think it did, uh, it? Law and Order debuted after Star Trek The Next Generation. I think Generation. it did, yeah. But Law and Order has uh, four million episodes uh, over yeah. the course of 30 different TV shows. And... Uh, those were rarely about interpersonal conflict, weren't they? They were about cops doing their jobs. They were about lawyers doing their jobs. And Law and Order, the star of Law and Order is essentially the system. It's the, the criminal justice system. Mm. And uh, the, the reason why I think a lot of people like to go back to Law and Order is it shows the, the criminal justice system kind of working well for once. Yeah. Like it do, it do, it's, this it's, kind about, of like, it's about how it's supposed to work. It's, yeah. yeah, it's like this idealized version of the criminal justice system. The cops are, for the most part, pretty honorable. The lawyers are, for the most part, pretty honorable. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, sometimes the bad guys get away, but for the most part, it's about figuring out the truth and mm-hmm. justice is served. First episode of Law and Order, mm-hmm. episode 101, September 13th, 1990. So quite a few okay. years so, yeah, uh, for, ahead of Next Generation. Also kind of funny, first episode of Law and Order, Pilot episode, Prescription for Death. Mm. Pilot episode, or the first TV movie of Columbo, Prescription Murder. Wow, everybody's getting prescribed. Ah. I wonder why if the diagnosis was also murder. <laughs> I never, I di- never, I diagnosis never... murder, prescription murder. <laughs> I never, I never saw diagnosis murder. I, I never saw it. Okay. I always thought it was kind my, of funny that every single that week this doctor gets like someone with a case of murder. Like, it's <laughs> like really, every week someone's well, got look, like looks like you've got some murder. Let uh, me dance. <laughs> Because it's Dick, Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. Um, Diagnosis Murder isn't talked about a lot. That's actually kind of, that shows a hoot. It's one of those shows that lasted forever, and yet no one you knew actually watched it. Yeah, like Matt or maybe Locke your or parents, Walker Texas Ranger. Yeah, yeah. Ne- never underestimate the the sheer volume of people over sixty who are just consuming a huge amount of television. Uh, but back to uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, yeah, there's uh, a lot of conflict as to how this show got off the air mm. uh, got off the ground yeah, um, there was a lot of turnover uh, in the writers room like a lot yeah, Roddenberry really really wanted to be in charge of this but there was all you know if, if you look up some like uh, well there's, there's some, a doc- some actually the uh, conflicts that were going on you'll learn about his lawyer oh, yeah. who was like this really skeevy guy who was like sneaking around and changing scripts well there's and, a documentary we watched yeah. uh, called Chaos on the Bridge yeah uh, which is Pretty good as a documentary goes. Mm. It's tricky because it's a documentary about a lot of things that are 
Um, sort of an oral history. There wasn't a lot of footage for most of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's basically mostly writers and members of the crew talking about what a clusterfuck uh, the first couple of seasons of Next Generation was as they tried to figure out what the show was. As showrunners and Roddenberry clash, the showrunners realized that Star Trek has such a cult-like following that if they don't have Roddenberry on board, they probably don't have a successful show, no matter what. Mm. People just would eschew it and say that's not Trek. So they had to keep him happy, but also Roddenberry was weird and had weird ideas, and they had to kind of keep him in line and make sure that he could like deliver what they need to be a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, and Roddenberry, who'd been screwed over by the network and by uh, the studios, or at least he felt he had been, uh, decided to protect himself by having his personal lawyer uh, meddle. Just meddling and everything. And there are stories about, like, yeah, I would walk into my office and Gene Roddenberry's lawyer was hacking into my computer. Yeah. And yeah. that's there, like, that's not good. There was a lot of shady shit going on yeah. and trying to get Next Generation off the ground. Yeah. Uh, season two, uh, rather notoriously, uh, was made over the course of a writer's strike. Yes. So there's a lot of... A lot of messiness uh, there. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of peaks, but a lot of really low valleys. The worst episode of the show is The Clip Show. Yeah. There's actually a clip show at the end of the uh, second season. The title is Shades of Grey, and it's to be really fair, notorious among tre- Trekkies. To be but, fair, uh, there was also a clip show in uh, the original series. It just uh, it was a clip. Yeah. It was a clip show of well, a show no one saw. Yeah, the, because the pilot hadn't aired. At least you know you yeah. got new footage. The yeah. Shades of Grey is just footage from the first two seasons oh, of the show. My God. Um, let's Not meet looking the, forward to that. Let's meet the characters. We met the okay. ship. Uh, it's a big, big old ship. It's well, we, on an ongoing mission. We, it's the, the Enterprise D, and yeah. they finally figured out that it's about 78 years hence yeah. since Kirk and Company. We got a good long look at the ship. One of the bits of trivia I thought was really interesting was um, uh, there originally weren't any scenes in the engine room. Hmm. And uh, they had to write one in there specifically because the, the network said, if you don't need this built for the pilot we will never build this (laughs) you have the budget to build sets for the enterprise in the pilot mm. and then after that there's no more budget for it so they had to come up with a couple of bullshit lines of dialogue that just happened to take place in the engine room so that they could use it in future episodes i think that's Uh, hilarious and and it's great too because i actually like the engine room i like the idea of the engine uh yeah there's a lot of new sets uh How many sets were there in the original series? There's the bridge. We saw that the, a lot. There was the bridge. Uh, there, there was the was lift. Ma- there was main engineering, a turbo lift. There was and like a quarters that they would redecorate. There were like and, two and like different two hallways. hallways. Yeah, yeah. there were like two hallways or at least one with, the, with reverse angles. Uh, there was, there like, was the, uh, the med bay. That's right. There was sick bay. Yeah. Uh, there was like the, this. The transporter room. The there transporter was, room. There was this like meeting room with that triangular TV yeah. screen thing. Every once in a while you'd see a crew member's quarters, but not often enough that they probably had to keep that on track. Yeah. So it's probably the same quarters redressed every time. Yeah. So uh, um, I'm not, to, is there something? I feel like I'm forgetting something. That's about it. We said the, the transporter room. Yeah. Sick bay. Yeah. Um, that's about it. Yeah. Next generation, we get to see all of that and more. We get to see the bridge, we get to see the turbo lift, mm-hmm. but we get to see uh, the captain's ready room. The captain's ready room. Which will be important, I'm yeah. not sure if we see the meeting room in this one, like the the conference room where they all meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's just off of the bridge as well. If you look carefully, there's a toilet on the bridge. <gasps> what? The, on the bridge like like there's a little door off to the side and that's where the head is i like you know yeah, you know actually, it literally never occurred to me where was the toilet on the bridge <laughs> i actually i'm actually glad that there is one yeah i really actually thought it's like do I'm you really have to glad. go like back to your quarters to use the yeah. bathroom no there's there's a toilet right there i'm actually the really really glad about yeah. that uh, so that's the ship the ship yeah. looks really really cool and then yeah so we got the cast yeah. uh let's go through them one by one we have captain jean-luc picard mm-hmm. uh 
big shoes to fill, Captain Jolly Picard. And apparently there was a lot of pressure from the network to have a dashing, strapping, you know, young Shatner hero type. And honestly, kudos to Roddenberry for, for wanting someone a bit more older and more, yeah. you, you know, like experienced to bring a completely different. Because I think if they had gone that route, if like Jonathan Frakes had been the captain, mm. it might have worked. But I feel like it probably would have invited too many well, comparisons. Yeah, the, and uh, this is a totally different vibe. They really wanted to set it apart. And because Roddenberry wanted it to be more about sort of the setting and the time than about like mm. the d- dynamic between the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he figured that the character dynamic w- could grow, and mm. indeed it did. Uh, but yeah, uh, f- finding the right person and finding new types of characters was really important mm-hmm. to him. So yeah, Jean-Luc Picard is played by Patrick Stewart, uh, is very, very uh, stead, and especially in the early early seasons, very serious a captain. Yeah, I he's, actually... he's a lot more by the book and mm. a lot colder. Well, I, I actually think it works in the pilot in particular mm. because... In the pilot, he's still getting used to his crew, and he meets half of them in the pilot. Like, when the first half of the pilot, it's like the the ship going to Farpoint Station to pick up the second half of the command crew. Mm-hmm. So he's working with only half of the characters in the first half of the pilot, and actually, that's kind of genius because it gives those characters room to like actually like interact mm-hmm. free from the plot a little bit. And then once the other characters come in, they can have their moments. And it's actually a good rather than just shoving twelve characters on screen all at once. It stretches it out a bit and gives people time to like have their uh, mm. proper introduction. I think it's actually really clever writing. Um, but um, he's getting to know his crew, and he's asserting his authority. He needs his crew to understand that he is in charge, and he yeah. also needs to test his crew. And as a result, when he is putting Riker through the paces, you know, giving him a stern talking to, giving him tasks that are kind of mundane and pointless, he's testing to see if he'll do them. Yeah. What's what's he going to be like when I tell him to do something he doesn't enjoy doing? Mm. What's what is he like when I tell him that I need him to actually talk back to me? Like these are actually good things for a captain to do. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, not- I think it works really well. It works really really well, but you'll notice these are all uh professional obligations. Mm-hmm. This is about uh their jobs. Yeah. More much more than it is about sort of their relationships. Uh the strongest relationship Captain Picard has before the start of the episode is with Dr. Beverly Crusher. Mm-hmm. Played, played by, by Gates McFadden. Gates McFadden of Marker fame. Uh, <laughs> yes. Marker. She was also in Hunt for Red October. And, and the Hunt for Red October. Yeah. Uh, she was in an episode of Dream On. Uh, she, she, she had like sort of a modest TV career before Star Trek. And um, she, yeah, she's the chief medical officer. She's... Um, Again, also very serious. She's a very serious yeah. character. She's very strikingly intelligent. I've always mm-hmm. liked that she's like one of the more moral characters. Like she's super ethical. Yeah, she she has no lines. Uh, she her her ethical lines are very clearly drawn. I actually always preferred that to Bones. I actually mm-hmm. think Bones's assholeish attitude was really unbecoming of a doctor. Yeah, he, and it's it's like it, it was, it I don't want just him as my bad, doctor. It wasn't just bad bedside manner. I could live with that. It yeah. was uh, yeah. It was like he was. Willing to play like fast and loose frontier medicine, no matter what the situation was, mm-hmm. whether it called for it or not. Yeah, and Be- I, Beverly Crusher is just the opposite. I feel of like that. Beverly Crusher is exactly the doctor yeah. I'd want in real life. Of mm-hmm. all the, of all the Starfleet doctors that mm-hmm. I've ever seen, she's the one I would trust most to be my actual like yeah. doctor in real life. Uh, doctor Crusher and Doctor Flux from Enterprise is Fair also enough. a very good character. You're more familiar with Doctor um, Flux than I am, uh, but like in the past. Uh, Picard was friends, and I think like he was on a ship with Gates McFet with uh, Beverly Crusher's husband. Yeah, 
who died on a mission, and we don't go into a lot of detail about... Do we ever go into detail about I, what happened? We're, we'll see a lot more of Jack okay, Crusher. Okay, good. Uh, and uh, he died, and Picard was responsible for bringing back the body and delivering the bad news, and as a result, there's some baggage there, and in particular, uh, Beverly Crusher's son, Wesley Crusher, played by Will Wheaton, uh, has kind of a weird relationship with Picard where you can tell like he's a little trepidatious but he's also looking at Picard like maybe you could be the father figure I don't have yeah well he he he, res- he respects sort of the chain of command his mom is the yeah. chief medical officer on a starship he has aspirate we'll learn later that he has aspirations to get into Starfleet himself oh I think that's clear right from uh, the beginning he's, yeah. he's obsessed with like the inner workings of it mm. there's a whole plot where he wants to visit the bridge and Picard uh, well, that's against protocol, isn't it? You know, have a bunch of kids running around the bridge touching so stuff. There, there was a um, there was a scene in the pilot where Wesley gets to go on the bridge and he asks to sit in the captain's chair, and that's oh. that's like a big no no. It's like, oh. well, no, doesn't he ask to like sit in a chair? And, the, and Picard actually invites him to the captain's chair. Like, oh, he's that's trying right, to yeah. Because yeah. he has a Picard has a speech to to Riker, and we'll talk about Riker in a minute. Mm. But Picard has a speech to Riker where he talks about how I need you to prevent me. I I am might be a good Starfleet captain. But I'm on a ship with children. He doesn't say families. He says specifically children, which I think is mm. interesting. And he says, I'm worried about coming across like an ogre. So please mm. keep me from making an ass out of myself in non-Starfleet situations. Yeah. Uh, so when Wesley is on, you know, wants to come on board. First, mm. he, he doesn't even come aboard. He actually just is in the turbo lift. And he's like, hey, no children on the bridge. He's like, he's in the turbo lift. Yeah. <laughs> he's it's not... fine. And, 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 and Dr. Like, Dr. Crusher is there. He's like, my son is not... On the bridge. Yeah. He's in the turbo lift. He's facing the bridge. And Picard's like, All right, you know what? I'm being an asshole. Come on in. Yeah. You know, it's it's fine. And uh, then uh, he invites Wesley to sit in the captain's chair. And Wesley's like, ooh. And he knows what all the buttons do. And then there's a proximity alert. And Wesley answers it. Yeah. Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> Which uh, is totally a bad thing to do. And, and, and of course, you know, Picard is furious and he shoots him off the bridge. Yeah. Uh, l- let me pause for a second. Yeah. Um, Wesley got to sit in the captain's chair. Yeah. They wouldn't let us sit in the captain's chair. A friend of mine and I got to visit the set. <laughs> so jealous. <laughs> this was in, in like on the seventh season. So like everything was, uh, was, was built. They were so all, the early nineties early. Yeah. They were already working on deep space nine. So we got to visit deep space nine as well. And, um, and we got to see the bridge of the enterprise. And of I'm course, really and of course we're, we're just like, like me and my friend who were doing this together. We're just drooling all over ourselves. And they say, can't touch anything. I know, I know I want to, but I know. And, and so uh, of course, you know, it's like, here it is. There's the captain's chair. May we sit in it? No. <laughs> Are you sure I can't just like for a but, second? I think I th- no. <laughs> like it was it, it, Patrick Stewart will have a conniption if you can't yeah, it's do like, it. It's like if we sat on it, the whole set would explode. <laughs> it was like no, you can't do it. So there, there was an incident once. We don't let it, we don't let people do that anymore. So Wesley, that jerk, <laughs> got to sit in the captain's chair, and I did not. Well, <laughs> so who, I've, I've seen it. Can you blame him? <laughs> no, I guess not. Would you if you were Wesley and it was like Picard's just like, would you like to sit in my chair, Wesley? And Wesley's like, no. One day Whitney Seibold might want to sit there, and I don't want to ruin it for him. That would be an inter- really weird wrinkle in the show. Yeah, I'm like, whoa, uh, what's that setting up? <laughs> uh, but I always I, that scene always bugged. I remember actually thinking about that scene when I first saw it when I was a very little kid, and thinking to myself, that's a weird scene hmm. where Wesley's sitting in the captain's chair. There's a proximity alert, and Wesley presses a button and hmm. says, "Captain, there's a proximity alert," and 
Captain Picard says, "Get out of my chair. That's you're, you're, you're that's wrong. Get out of here. You're, like, don't touch things." That's and yeah, then that's and, not your job. We and, need professionals. On and this. as he's shooing Wesley off of the bridge, uh, Worf, who we'll talk about in a minute, says, "Captain, there is a proximity alert." And that's when Beverly Crusher gets on the list of yeah, which my son tried to tell you. Mm-hmm. Boom! Like slams the turbo lift door behind her as if he didn't know. I'm like. The point isn't that there was a proximity alert. The point is the kids shouldn't be touching stuff on the bridge. Well, and, uh, but Picard was but, right. He was a bit stern about it, but he was right he, there. He was right. And uh, I, I think what Dr. Crusher was trying to point out was he he knew what he was doing. He wasn't yeah. he wasn't messing something up. He was actually very familiar with ship protocol, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It comes it comes across as though Wesley is some kind of super genius for recognizing a proximity alert. Right. I don't think that scene's written very well. The idea is fine, and it leads to a good scene later on where Picard goes to Crusher and says, I apologize, I was was rude to you and your child, and I know there's a lot of baggage here, and if you would like a a transfer, I wouldn't blame you. And Crusher actually says, no, I requested this. Mm. This is where I want to be. And he's like, oh, I didn't really know about that. Well, you didn't think to look it up, did you? You're right, I'm an asshole. All right. Yeah, see, and they get to grow. It's a great (laughs) great little scene. That's Um, that's a good bit. I like that bit a lot. Uh, Worf, you mentioned Worf. Let's uh, talk about Worf. First Klingon first. officer in an, on a starship that we've ever, or just that we've ever seen. Uh, Worf was the first Klingon in Starfleet. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, we we had heard about the Klingons before. Uh, Gene Roddenberry wanted to stay away from familiar uh, species. species that we had seen before. So no Klingons as bad guys, no Romulans as bad guys. So we don't need Vulcans on the bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eventually just, we'll get both of those things. We'll get all of those things, of course. Yeah. But, you know, this is Star Trek. They're going to start referencing sort of a, a bigger universe that they're trying yeah. to grow. But Stuff has happened. Um, this, the species that's mentioned most frequently in this episode are the Ferengi. And we know mm. nothing about the Ferengi yet. They haven't yeah. been invented. They're just yeah. mentioned by name. They're mentioned as some, like, serious threat. There's a whole yeah. bit about, like, well, if you're not interested in this in Five Point Station, perhaps yeah. you could deal with the Ferengi. It's like, oh, yes. I hear they enjoy eating people who don't who who mess with their plans as if they're like the Gorn, and uh, well, the, I got to remember that the Frangi were initially set up to be like the big enemy species. Yeah, yeah. On next generation, and uh, boy, did that not work out as planned. No, they they changed a lot about the Ferengi yeah. eventually. The, the apparently we're, in the books to... they eventually clarified that the image that the Starfleet had of the Ferengi as this like monstrous evil race was uh, actually uh, intentional propaganda by <laughs> Grand Nagus Zek, who which, after... which makes perfect sense when you get to know what the Ferengi were going to eventually become. Starfleet was moving further and further towards Ferengi territory, and uh, Grand Nagus Zek, who we will meet, eventually meet in uh, Deep Space Nine. Found out that Starfleet... about the Great Wall is Sean. Uh, yeah, but they found out that uh, Starfleet had no system of currency. So Grand Gazette thought they were dangerously insane and decided to start building themselves up with a propaganda machine as someone that Starfleet didn't want to fuck with. <laughs> Which is, is a workaround for that plot hole, but you know what? I like uh, that. I'll, I'll, I'll take fun. it. I'll take that's it. That's cute. Yeah. That's cute. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they talk that. about the Ferengi and how they, yeah, they're these horrible cannibals. But yeah, Worf uh, was the Klingon. He looked like the Klingons did in Star Trek Three. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he's, he's got they got like the enlarged forehead. He mm-hmm. also has like Klingon uh, sash, sash yeah. uh, which which will like change over the course of the years, and the makeup will change as well. Um, but he is just at tactical. Yeah, he's a junior he, officer. Yeah, he doesn't. Have, he will get promoted, mm-hmm. but. There will be bad situations that will lead to that. In fact, uh, he'll he'll be a lieutenant throughout the course of most of the show. And so many fans were upset that he was just sort of this lieutenant the entire time. That yeah. one of the big plot points in the first Next Generation movie 
was his promotion. It was Lieutenant Commander, finally. That's good. Um, uh, but yeah, he's we, we don't get a lot you know, of him here, but uh, he's... he's I, what I think is interesting is actually the fact that they're not making a big deal out of it. Mm-hmm. Is that he is just a member of the crew, and... You know, you would think because the Klingons had been uh, portrayed so consistently mm. uh, with such a consistent uh, ethos and philosophy uh, that that would lead to more conflict. It's actually, the person who has the most conflict on the bridge uh, with Picard is Tasha Yar. Tasha Yar, uh, who's played by Denise Crosby, who was sort of the celebrity get at the time. Yeah. She was the like the biggest quantity, I suppose she, she had, was, she was on the rise. She was on the rise. She had like the most, um, uh, what did she negotiating power, negotiation power. What had she time? been in at this point? Uh, well, she was Bing Crosby's daughter. So that oh, okay. was, that was a big part of it, I think. But yeah, I don't think she really had like a big acting credit to her name. Interesting. But from what I understand, she was considered like the, the big star going to be one of the big stars of the show. Well, yeah, they, they were setting her up to be yeah. a big her, player. uh, the character as she was originally envisioned was a character named Macha Hernandez. Mm. And, uh, she was going to be a, a Latina character, but they changed her to Tasha Yar, uh, over the oh, course wait. of, Development. Uh, to be fair, she had already been in uh, 48 Hours and two of the admittedly bad Pink Panther movies. So yeah, so she 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 had some she yeah. had some cachet. But yeah, she yeah. Uh, Tasha Yar is the security chief, so she's really uh, touchy about uh, protocol Pro- and, and protocol and, make, and, and making sure everybody's safe and weaponry. You know, yeah. as as a chief of security ought to and, be. And when a conflict arises with an alien called Q, who of course we will talk about in a minute. Uh, she's the one who's just like, well, we'll have to attack. Mm. And I love that Picard's just like, what do you think we're going to do against an omnipotent being? <laughs> and Tashara's just like, okay, what what do you think we should do, Captain? <laughs> uh, but we also get yeah. to see her kick butt. Oh, she's she's the fighter. She's gonna yeah. have all more the most stunt scenes. Uh, yeah. uh, Which I, I think I like is, is the type of uh, role for. A woman in Star Trek that we hadn't had, yeah, in the original it, series. So well, that is a was, nice change of pace. There also wasn't a security chief. These are new roles that we're envisioning oh, yeah. for for Next Generation. Um, mm-hmm. We had a chief engineer. Weirdly, we won't get a chief engineer until later in Next Generation. We meet the chief engineer in the first couple seasons, but it's like a couple different guys, mm. uh, and it wouldn't be until a lot of I turnaround. Think, in, yeah, in the season three that uh, Jordy LaForge would become the chief engineer, which is weird because wouldn't that be just cleaner? To just let Jordy LaForge be the chief engineer? Like, what What do you... Do they, do they like, get someone with that? In in the first couple episodes, he's wearing the red uniform, mm. and as we've learned, the colors uh, denote your uh, department. Yeah. So if you're a science or medical, you wear the blue uniform. If you're in command, you wear red. And if you're uh, security or engineering, you wear the gold right. on Next Generation. Uh, he's wearing red. Jordy LaForge is wearing red in the first couple seasons. Mm. So he wanted to become a captain. He wanted command. Okay. And it's some it just at some point, yeah, yeah, he just wanted a, a career change. Well, let's talk about uh, Jordy LaForge, who also is a huge get at the time, mm-hmm. uh, played by LeVar Burton, who had starred in the biggest television event in history, Roots. Yeah, yeah, he was he was Kunta Quinte. Yeah, that's seriously that's that's a big fucking deal. People knew who LeVar Burton was, and, um, and he was already also already doing Reading Rainbow. Was so, he already yeah, doing that? By just, no, no shit. Okay, I, I, I knew he'd actually, been doing it for forever. I, I don't know if he. I'm done. pretty sure Reading Rainbow had been on for a, a couple of years. I just didn't remember if he was yeah. the original host or not. But that's interesting. Um, so LeVar Burton already a prominent figure, and he's playing a character who has a disability, hmm. and yeah, that eight, is eighty three was was Reading Rainbow. Okay, good for him. Uh, 
yeah, he's playing a character with a disability, and in the future, uh, he's he's blind. He was born blind, mm. and he has a visor, which allows him to see, but not in the conventional way. See in a variety of different spectrums. He can yeah, get by normally, but he doesn't see conventionally. It's it's not just thermal. There's like yeah, all these different spectrum that yeah. uh, are through these little blinking lights uh, that we. He takes his visor off. He's got these little things implanted in his temples. Yeah, that just sort of send visual signals directly into his brain, bypassing his eyes. And they they there's some there's a bit in this episode, and I believe it's actually only in the episode because it was running short. Uh, but uh, where uh, Crusher is like adjusting his visor mm. and she talks about how, you know, there are actually like procedures. There's like drugs and things you can do that would like, you, there's actually like stuff you can do to uh, alleviate mm. the pain of having this implant, which apparently is very uncomfortable, but to do that would make the implant not work as well. Yeah. So he has to live with it. Yeah. There, there's also a, a line of dialogue in, in the, again, to cite generations where they talk about, how they could replace the visor with uh, implants that look like eyes and would yeah. go where his eyes are, uh, but I think they say that it, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't work as well. Like he could have right. imp- like eyeball looking implants, but mm. the visor actually gives him a great uh, spectrum of uh, vision. Eventually, very, after uh, generations, that will become a plot point. Yeah, uh, but... he. Uh, Georgia LaForge is, again, all of these characters are incredibly intelligent. Georgia LaForge is very uh, curious. He's very enthused. I really like the character. I like his energy mm-hmm. levels. Yeah. And uh, he is not for a second ever on this entire show an object of pity because yeah. of his disability. Yeah. It is the most natural thing in the world. Yep. They uh, they talk about his his uh, eyes and his visor and the way it works, but it's never, ever mm. brought up as like any kind of handicap yeah uh, and that's a really progressive thing uh, uh, especially for 80s tv yeah. one step backward though the character was originally intended to be queer and they decided not to go there yeah, yeah they uh, decided I, yeah. I, I heard an interview with lavar burton and they said how, how come you never got like love scenes like all the other characters even the the android got love scenes for goodness sake and you yeah. didn't get any love scenes and he can only say what can i say they were afraid of a black man's sexuality yeah uh, and uh yeah and he he said it in sort of like a jokey kind of way. It's like, well, yeah. you know, I didn't need love scenes from Jordan LaForge, but but uh, at the same time, yeah. it's, it's a good point. When the series goes on that long, mm. everyone has an opportunity to do a little bit of everything. And if one character doesn't do a certain thing, it stands mm. out, doesn't? Yeah, it? Uh, Jordan LaForge will get uh, sort of this pseudo romance with uh, that weird trend that that one hologram stalker uh, romance thing later well it's not a stalker um Mm, uh, dr leia well dr he recreates the designer of the enterprise a a designer named dr leah brahms and uh like really bonds with the holographic version of her and then in a later episode the real woman visits the, the ship and she's, of course, nothing like the hologram and yeah. is, like, really creeped out that he had this hologram. As her. well they yeah. should be, because that's <laughs> weird, especially if you start forming yeah. a weird emotional bond with it. Uh, but in any case, but he's, he's, he's a machine guy. He's yeah. more comfortable with machines. Uh, let's talk about uh, William Riker, the first officer aboard the Starship Enterprise. He is young and handsome. He, he's the sex appeal of the show. He's uh, uh, the male sh- sex appeal, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's hunky. He's got an he's got an early Shatner kind of vibe. It feels like that's kind of the compromise. Mm-hmm. You know, Picard will be more of a you know 
authoritarian figure, not authoritarian, authoritative figure. Mm. And uh, Riker will be the young stud who gets to go on all the action stuff and sleep yeah. with all the and, ladies. Well, and if the whole idea is the first officer is going to lead away missions, you're going to want like a, an old like Republic serial adventurer type. Yeah. So they got, yeah, tall, tall, bland, white man mm. in, in William T. Riker. Mm. Um, William I, T. Riker is a little bit more playful. Mm-hmm. He's a lot more personable, and I think he resents, especially uh, in the pilot, how authoritative Picard is. Picard yeah. is very cold, and he doesn't he doesn't appreciate that kind of command structure as he does. Like, no, we're we're just going to hang out. We're like sort of more brotherly, right? And I actually really mm-hmm. like uh, uh, the bit he has with Picard, where Picard is basically like, you know, you you, you refuse to let your captain go on away missions. Would you do that for me? Mm-hmm. And he says. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that part of my job is to protect the safety of the captain and to put myself in those positions instead of the captain. And Picard's just like, all right, fair enough. I, I, I respect that. Mm-hmm. You, you actually should keep S- talking. Speak to, your mind. Speak yeah. your mind. Always, always tell me your mind. And if we disagree, we disagree. And I actually like that. And I think mm-hmm. that's it's good to establish that... Uh, Picard doesn't want just his way or the highway. He is he is authoritative, but he does actually appreciate his crew, and he listens mm. to his crew, and that's yeah, something that will yeah. be important in the show. I do remember that much. Um, Riker doesn't get a lot in this episode, but we do get a little bit of backstory uh, between him and Troy. What's what's her uh, first name again? Deanna. Deanna Troy. Yeah, Deanna Troy, who is the, played by Marina Sirtis. Uh, who I. She, I think, I, I, she was in Death Wish three before this. Uh, she, she had a, you know a few, uh, mm-hmm. a, a few credits to her name. She was um, in Death Wish three. She was in Blind Date, although she played a, a, a very small role. Right. Uh, and uh, she had done a fair amount of television. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think if there was anything particularly prominent. Uh, uh, n- nothing super yeah. super prominent anyway. Uh, Deanna Troy is the ship's counselor. She is uh, also a new figure. Yeah, new uh, role. A, a new role yeah, that is like the ship psychologist. Somebody who's going to not just be on the bridge. In fact, right next to the captain at all times mm-hmm. to give him like emotional advice and give her mm-hmm. uh, sort of her insight as to um, like psychological insight as to like the people they're talking to. She's also all of them uh, come, which is a good idea because yeah. all of them come from different cultures and yeah, different so we need, backgrounds. And so you know how you interpret their actions may be. Mm-hmm entirely geocentric and totally wrong. Yeah. So, so that's actually really good. That's uh, a smart idea. Deanna Troy is half human and half betazoid, uh, which is a species we hadn't talked about before. Mm. And betazoids are psychics. Mm. Uh, they say that full betazoids are full psychic because she's half human. She's what they call an empath and she can re- kind of read emotions. She yeah. feels the, feel- the feelings of people around her. Yeah. Uh, so she can't actually cool. hear what you're yeah. thinking except... Except in the case of William Riker, uh, they call each other Imzadi. And they don't really go into what that means in the show. Mm. Uh, Really? They never really get into that? They use the word a couple more times, uh, but yeah, they don't they actually, it, don't they? they don't yeah, explain they, like where it came yeah. from or what that word actually means or like the significance of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Do they drop the psychic link? Does that ever come back? Cause I feel like I never they, remember it coming. They up. never communicate telepathically after the pilot. Oh my God. Yeah. Why even do that? It's such an awkward scene too. It's like, okay, well, Mr. Riker, here's, uh, here's our Troy. And Troy is just like, I'm going to stand up quietly. Everyone's looking at me and I will think very slowly to you. Can you still read my thoughts? 
Imzadi. <laughs> and everyone's like, are you guys going to talk? This is really awkward and weird. And she's like walking slowly toward him. Do you still remember that time together? It's like, uh, what is going on, young lady? And um, then we just, after all that built up, nothing. That never comes, that never comes to end. That's hilarious. To yeah, me. they don't turn it into a plot point or anything. They I, never... thought it was, I thought it was because they, cause the, yeah, these are characters who, over the course of the series, would have on-again, off-again romance. They would be the, the Ross and Rachel. They're destined to be together, but mm. something always gets in the way for a while. And uh, I thought it was because they had this like deep personal connection, and that would actually be important. Wouldn't that be interesting if he couldn't keep his thoughts from her or vice versa? And they're working together mm. on the bridge. How exciting and what an interesting wrinkle. Mm. And uh, we're just not going to do that. Nope, not going <laughs> to not gonna do it. Going out of our way to introduce that shit awkwardly for yeah, a while. If, if, if you do want to know more about Mzadi, they, they wrote a book about it. Of course uh, they P- fucking did. Peter David wrote a whole novel about the entire backstory as to what the word means. And oh my God. Young Riker and young Troy's adventures on Beta Z when they first met, etc., etc. Um, Bless them. Um, and, so, and we'll, we'll also eventually meet... Uh, Deanna Troy's mom, Loxana, is going to be played by Majel Barrett, Yay. and she's a great character. Um, Gotta love Majel Barrett. Yeah. Um, let's see, who have we, who have we, not, we, not, uh, we haven't talked about? Is it just Data, or is there someone else we've forgotten? Uh, As the main was, crew. I think it's it, just Data, right? Yeah, we talked about Worf, we talked yeah. about Tasha Yar, um, and yeah, there was, and this was a really early idea, was to have one of the crew members be an android, mm-hmm. an artificial life form. And so we have... Data, Played which by Brent Spiner, yeah, Brent Spiner, uh, who was on Night Court. Uh, he, <laughs> he he played a hillbilly on Night Court. He's a, an actor with great range. Mm-hmm. Night Court again. I, it's funny enough. I think I brought it up already. Uh, really huge sitcom in the eighties. No one talks mm. about it very much anymore, but it was huge. It was huge, and it's funny. Night pretty Court funny. is hilarious. Uh, it's, it's, it's really weird. It's a bizarre show. Did you ever did you ever see the the episode where they actually uh, broke? The, because night court's about a court at night and people just come in with all with their weird problems. So yeah, and like it's, it's like all, all, all of the cases that can't get scheduled during the day. Yeah. So uh, there's one actual episode of Night Court where uh, one of the cases that comes in is a bunch of Next Generation and the original series fans from a Star Trek convention got into like a riot. <laughs> so they bring them both in and everyone's just like, you guys are taking this way too seriously. It's just a TV show. And it's like, I don't recognize your authority. Well, but well, then we're going to hold you in contempt of court. Oh, yeah? Three to beam up. <laughs> and then they actually beam up. <laughs> and they're just sort of like, the fuck? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. Uh, but yeah, we have Brent Spiner as Data. I When I first watched the pilot, uh, yeah. I watched it as a kid, because uh, it was kind of a big deal in my house. Sure. We watched the original show. Next Generation was coming along. Let's do that. It's going to be a big family night. Uh, and I hated that they named him Data. Too obvious? Uh, yeah, like they named him after a computer thing. Yeah. Like, why don't you just call him, like... Steve. Yeah, Joey or Steve yeah. or, or you know, Beowulf. Whatever you want to call him. Give him, like, a person kind of name. No, you're going to yeah. name him Data. And uh, Data... Uh, stands out. He's emotionless. He doesn't have emotions. He hasn't been programmed to feel emotions mm-hmm. uh, and is very analytical, very smart, actually did attend Starfleet Academy, like actually went through all of the mm-hmm. steps required to earn his rank. Uh, he wasn't just installed as a piece of property. Uh, mm-hmm. He's seen as an individual. Yeah. Uh, he, um, 
He also aspires to be human. Yeah. He actually is fascinated by humanity and has a, has a goal for his yeah. life. It, I think this is a really great character. Mm. First off, just because Brent Spiner is really wonderful in the role. And it's amazing. Like, again, this character was supposed to have no emotions. And I feel like he, he actually does. He has one. He has curiosity. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's really important. I think you need that. But um, you can you can logically explain curiosity. Mm. So um, S- Same with, uh, like being confused or befuddled, which he is a lot. Somebody yeah. does something that's illogical. It like kind of yes. yeah. d- has to it recalculate a little doesn't bit. Work yeah. on, doesn't work under his programming. Uh, but uh, I think it's an important character to have in principle yeah. because I've talked a bit about how Star Trek can be kind of frustratingly geocentric sometimes. Yeah. But uh, the more you venture out into the stars and the more you meet other cultures, which is going to be a bit more of a mission statement on Next Generation... Uh, the more you need to throw things into sharp relief, and occasionally you can't you, you can't take humanity for granted. Right. And having data actually need humanity explained to him our quirks and our foibles and the things that aren't logical, which is a lot about humanity, uh, uh, works. And mm. because it's, it's of like an, an outsider perspective on humanity. Yeah, we need a bit of an outsider's perspective. It's not. If I don't remember it being terribly cloying, although the first scene with data is a stupid scene because it's Picard <laughs> on the, it's Picard on the bridge. And he's like, Oh yeah. So my first mission is to go to this far point station and uh, snoop around and see what's what. Yeah. And data says, uh, captain, uh, define snoop. And Picard's just like data. How can you be a, an Android just designed to know everything about humanity and not know a simple word like snoop. And first off, clunky exposition <laughs> delivered with as much aplomb as you possibly Look, could, Sir Patrick Stewart. Patrick, Bravo. Patrick Stewart, <laughs> we have learned, has the glorious talent uh-huh. of making completely stupid dialogue sound authoritative and natural. Yes, he does. Like, he's great. He's, no, he's a genius. <laughs> That's a clunky-ass line of dialogue. And, the, and it doesn't even make sense because he understands, like, he even goes on like a bit of a rant as he goes through every synonym with Snoop. Mm. And it's like, you have gumshoe in there but you didn't have snoop how does how did that happen it doesn't make any sense surely surely when you're when you're programming data Mm. and and we'll learn the name of his creator it's dr nunian singh later on and Mm. we'll we'll actually learn a lot more about data's creation as the show Mm. goes on you didn't upload a dictionary not a complete one yeah i guess not (laughs) the uh uh i here's a one 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 fun it's not a fact it's uh Mm. it's an anecdote uh about data I went through a very large part of my life where I thought data had data had a last name okay because they data was his first name I thought data was his first name and I thought I thought it was actually a really clever name because data it's like okay he's a computer he's logical but his last name they gave him something like really philosophical and kind of interesting so for a long data time I, Galileo or something, I thought his name yeah. was data Plato data Plato like yeah. like Dana Plato. Yeah, it turns strokes. out I just conf- I just I had heard Dana Plato, but I I never heard I never watched with anything that Dana Plato was on. So I thought Dana's last name was Hey Dana Plato. Actually, isn't a Dana bad Plato. name. It kind of makes sense yeah. actually. But uh, I've never a, shared that anecdote before. That's something they'd come back to in uh, Voyager because there, yeah. there's another artificial uh, life form on oh, that yeah. show is then the holographic doctor. He wants a, a name at one point. Uh, yeah, wants a name, and I don't think ever really settles on one i remember an early interview i read about voyager and the plans for the series was they were actually going to call him dr zimmerman yeah, doc zimmerman in fact yeah um, that was good that was a plan in fact that was actually like the 
like person who designed him or created his program. They, they mentioned and they it set it up, that, but I yeah. guess they never did. They never actually went with. They it. said, "Yeah, I, I look like the guy who programmed me. His name was Zimmerman, and I, I yeah. think we do meet Zimmerman at some point in Voyager." But uh, I think I remember hearing some of that. But yeah, mm-hmm. so I, my understanding, the original plan was to just call him that, but mm-hmm. I guess they just dropped it eventually and decided yeah, it wasn't. He's important. just the doctor. Yeah, he names himself Schweitzer in one episode, but then drops it later. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, Data is just Data. Uh, he's not even Data. Uh, in the second season, Dr. Pulaski calls him Data, and, and he corrects her. It's like, nice. not Data, I'm Data. Nice. Uh, yeah, he's an artificial life form. Uh, when he first meets uh, Will Riker, who is picked up at Furpoint Station, mm-hmm. this very uh, far-flung station that's been built out there and uh, the Federation doesn't know a lot about, uh, he meets Data on the holodeck, which is a new... Uh, a concept that was uh, played with in an animated series episode. Yep. Where you can create artificial environments. They actually go into the tech a little bit more. I actually appreciated that because I'd forgotten that mm-hmm. they actually had explained some of the tech because they talk about how is all of this an illusion and Data explains no. And some of it is actually real because they have the capacity to replicate things mm-hmm. and they have the capacity to transport things. So very simple forms like rocks and water can very easily be created in the holodeck that are real. Mm. And I'm like, oh, that actually <laughs> makes a lot of sense. And uh, That although, makes a lot of sense. I was, I was thinking about like, that actually, yeah, they, shit, that would be real water. Why not? Fuck. Uh, <laughs> they, they can, make, they they can explain, replicate water. Why not just put it on the holodeck? And they explain that the in this episode, it's like they can only walk as far as like the wall. But mm-hmm. they ex- eventually explain that when you walk, you're essentially on like a force field treadmill. So yeah. like the, like the that Jamiroquai music video. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Just like the, the was it Jamiroquai or was it Radiohead with the the furniture sliding around that was Jamiroquai Jamiroquai yeah um yeah that's um virtual insanity yeah the um the environments will like sort of pass around you virtually and you'll just be walking in place on this little thing so and indeed they can scan what somebody looks like and they can walk far away from each other and it looks like they're walking far away even though they're in the same room it's it's a whole lot of crap just to create basically create a plot convenience but the crap more or less falls together it's a plot convenience and it's greatly appreciated because it adds a lot of virtual uh, a lot of uh, variety to the show it's like we can do a lot of possibilities we can do away missions and this is still a point in the show when all the um the planet sets are just as cheap as the original series where yeah, it's like a series of rocks shape. in the background with like a green sky and that's all they have. Yeah. It's before they started shooting on location. I was uh, surprised and I, I mean, again, I'd seen the episode but I hadn't rewatched it in many, many years. I was surprised at how the actual transporter room conversation becomes important to the plot mm. in terms of what's going on at Farpoint Station. Actually, like it does connect a little bit and like helps explain yeah, some of the story. Yeah. I was pretty clear. We haven't talked about the plot. We'll get to that in a minute. Mm. Uh, there's one more character who we are introduced to in this episode who is not a regular character, but is one of the most important characters in yeah. the next generation. Although, although he's, he's not named yet, but... Uh... He's, he says he's from the queue, doesn't he? Oh, I thought you were going to talk about Cole Meany. Uh, oh yeah chief, chief o'brien's in the, the pilot chief, as well chief o'brien okay call him meanie he's just wonderful like actor con con officer they call he, him ensign even though i guess he's yeah. not an ensign in later episodes no he so. uh he they they needed someone to just be at the con in a couple of scenes and they just grabbed an actor mm-hmm. and it wasn't a major role i don't think he has any lines and well, he's got several lines in this episode yeah i don't remember anyway there, it's my point a small character mm. and uh yeah just throw him in there 
And uh, turns out they got Colomini, so fuck, bring him back. It's like a, it's actually <laughs> great actor, well-regarded Irish actor, yeah. just as this nobody con and officer. He will he will gradually become a bigger character in next generation, and then eventually become one of the main re- characters in DS Nine, and one of my favorite characters in DS Nine. Mm. So there you go. Um, so that's fun. But no, I was actually going to talk about Q. Yeah, uh, Q uh, is the big bad of the episode and arguably the series, mm. but he's a bit more than that. He's actually uh, they talk about it on Chaos on the Bridge, the idea that Q might simply be God. We run into a lot of would-be gods mm. in Star Trek, but Q is an interesting godlike figure for the series because he doesn't just... A, he doesn't just think he's God. He actually is omnipotent. He can literally do anything. Mm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, how do you, what do you do? How do you, how do you stop that? <laughs> he has sort of this cosmic brain, but he's also incredibly judgmental and has yeah. like kind of a wacky sense of humor. Well, he's, he's challenging the crew and, and he, he, I don't know if he tricks Picard into doing this or if Picard invites it upon himself, but Q goes to the, the enterprise and says, uh, he, humanity, he, just, he just appears on the bridge. Yeah. He appears on the, well, they, they uh, run into a force field in space yeah. and then Q appears on the bridge. He says, you're going out too far. Yep. Humanity has caused enough trouble already. You can't be trusted. You're a primitive species. You're warmongers. You're full, you're full of prejudice and fear. And if you look very, in, in even just the most superficial way at your past, you will see that that's kind of incontrovertible. To which Picard says, all of those things happened in the past and we acknowledge that and we're trying to move past that. And none of the things that you were accusing us of are anything that we here on the Enterprise have done. Mm. So Picard, and we'll talk a bit more about the plot, but Picard volunteers to make the crew of the Enterprise the stand-in for humanity. Mm. All of humanity. Yeah. All of humanity. We volunteer to be the best humanity can be. And, and he's supremely confident that, yeah. that uh, humanity has evolved so much since the uh, the examples that Q gives. And indeed, mm-hmm. uh, Q appears in one point in a World War II uniform. Mm-hmm. And it's actually kind of daring how dismissive Picard is of that. Yeah. It's like, we've grown a lot since we wore silly costumes like that. And you're in a jumper. said things <laughs> like that. Yeah. First of all, he's, you're, you're wearing pajamas right now. He's, he, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's in a zip front jumpsuit. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was pretty funny. But the idea is we we have no stock mm-hmm. in uh, patriotism or war or combat. Just dismisses all right away. And then, of course, uh, Q says, okay, well, how, how did you progress? Then he got... Because this is Star Trek. Real real example, real example, alien example. Yeah. So there was there was like the Middle Ages, and then there was World War II, and then there is the future, like the far future of like the twenty the late twenty first century. Mm. And um yeah, and there's a, a, a fascistic totalitarian society. I always thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, how this the, we're putting them we're putting all of humanity on trial in your own legal system from the late twenty first century. Uh, which followed the Shakespearean line, kill all the lawyers, and this was done. And uh, the philosophy is you are guilty until proven innocent, because if you were innocent, it would be cruel to put you through a trial. <laughs> I always thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, but, but um, yeah, he, yeah. He, he's like, your soldiers all had drugs, and you had these kangaroo courts, and so he whisks away uh, the crew members that are on the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Some are still at Fairpoint Station, uh, which is um, Picard, Data, Troy, and Yar. Yeah. 
and they're put on trial by Q wearing a judge's uniform in this kangaroo court of the future. Kara Hiroyuka Tagawa is there. Yeah. <laughs> Just this little supporting role. He, he, he hadn't had like a lot of like major roles yet, but if you don't know the name, uh, he was Shang Tsung in the Mortal Kombat movie. Uh, he's been a pretty prominent actor, a lot of character mm. roles for decades. I interviewed, he was one of the first celebrity interviews I ever did in person. Really nice. Mm. Uh, so he's, he's yeah. played a lot of heavies though. He's yeah. played like tough guys. I, and I, asked, a lot. Was, I was, I was kind of a naive question, but it was, mm. I asked him that it's like, it was where he was doing planet of the apes and he doesn't play a bad guy in planet of the apes. Mm. He plays like a good guy in Tim Burton's planet of the apes. And I asked him, um, as a feel to like have this prominent role in a major motion picture and not have to play the bad guy for once. And he was very, very character actor about it. He's like, listen, I get to work. Yeah. I will play I any role. I don't care if I play the villain every single time I get to play these roles and I love doing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, you're cool. Carrie here, Yuki Nagawa. And sure enough, he was dead. Uh, so yeah, he, he he has he's just in the kangaroo court. He's just one of the yeah. people there. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's like the bailiff or something. Yeah, he yeah. has a couple of lines of like announcing Q and everything yeah. like that. But it's fun. Yeah, um, Q like very succinctly argues, "You're a crap species. You've done yeah. a lot of garbage." And he's not and, wrong. And he's not wrong. And uh, Gene, from what I understand, Gene Roddenberry was the one who uh, invented the Q character. Yeah, he you, liked the idea of that Q was sort of like this presence that was always there the original uh pilot was supposed to be a one-hour pilot and it was basically just all the farpoint station stuff which we barely even touched upon we'll talk about that in a second but uh gene ronberry was informed by the network that they he needed to give them a two-hour pilot they needed a, a tv movie event to kick off the series and gene ronberry didn't want to do that uh, but he gave DC Fontana the the job of writing Counter at Farpoint, and then he took it away, and he added all the Q stuff, which is about half the episode, to be fair. Yeah. And then he was like, oh, yeah, and uh, they said, uh, for legal reasons, my name had to be the only one on this script, so sorry, He's, D- he's known DC Fontana for, like, 25 years Yeah, it's such point. a dick move. Like, it's not even... <laughs> It's not even like he's taking advantage of like some young intern, which would be evil too. But like, this is like a friend who he's stabbing right in front of her back. And it's incredible. And on that chaos on the bridge thing, when they talk to DC Fontana about it, she's like, um, she's like, he's like, and then he put his name on that. It's like, we went through arbitration. Like, are we going to talk about this? I am not going to go into detail about that. Yeah. <laughs> we went through arbitration. The matter is settled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly she's bitter, and rightfully so. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that I actually think, you know, I think the situation sucked, but I actually think the incorporation of Q and also the expansion of the episode works. Mm. Because, again, you get that first half of the episode before the plot kicks in where we just get to know half the cast. And the plot is about Q, and the plot can be about Q, and the plot can be about this sort of philosophical idea of the series as sort of we are aspirational we are trying yeah. to be better than all of humanity we, we, was we are before con- us. constantly testing ourselves yeah. that's the, the thesis of yeah. the show and Q gets to be introduced like on his own for a bit as a prominent figure so that kind of helps build his size yeah. and the mythology right. and he'll be more important later DC Fontana reportedly didn't like the Q character fair um, enough uh, I think John Delancey who plays Q uh, wins you over immediately he's great he, he's, he's a genius he knows how to do in, this character. In, it's impossible. He character. knows how to play this character. The character is initially very threatening. Uh, eventually, he'd become a little bit more like um, Mr. Mixius Spitlick from Superman, yeah, like the sort of, of like quirky trickster yeah. god. Um, yeah. It, there's there's going to be an episode later on where he's turned into a human and has to that, live I, on the ship for I a little bit. I think what uh, happens is that over time, the crew of the Enterprise wins him over a little bit. He thought they'd be yeah. easy marks, and it turns out they're actually yeah. like 
they're up to a lot of his challenges and he starts like kind of liking him a little. Well, and the crew right from the right from jump and every time he appears don't have any patience for his bullshit. Yeah. Like he can wipe out the universe with a thought, but it's like, just get the fuck off my ship. You God damn it. Q. So a, a, a wonderful, a wonderful bit where in in that episode where Q turns into a human is like, how can I prove to you I'm human? I what can I do? I can I'll do anything to prove it to you. And Worf says, die. <laughs> <laughs> what do I have to do to prove it to you? Die. I just hate him so much. Um, but he's he's a wonderfully hateable character because he's super judgmental. He doesn't care about anything. He has no social graces, and he's funny. Yeah, he's, he's really, he, really, he, really funny. He behaves like he's superior because he is. And I think that fits. I think yeah. there's a lot of the other characters who play godlike beings have tried to be this sort of like disembodied voice mm. or this sort of like whatever. You no, know, Q is a judgmental god. And yeah. I think that's a very uh he, well, he can yeah. back it up with his actual power. He doesn't mm. have he's not like uh uh the steward the the What's the word I'm looking for? Who was the Q from the original series? The Squire of Gothos. Squire of Gothos. Mm. Retroactively, arguably considered a Q. But yeah. uh, the Squire of Gothos like, had like a machine and like all these other things had all these limitations. Q was none of those. He's, he can back all of it up. Mm. He's functionally God. But he's also just a shitty guy. And yeah. I, I, well, I think that's a really great... Because if you're going to have a quasi-religious kind of figure like this mm. on Star Trek, I think you need to go back to the ancient religions where the gods were were imperfect mm. where the gods were judgmental yeah, or but, jealous yeah. or had, had, rude human, had or, human flaws because yeah. they were idealized versions of humans including their flaws yeah like you know you, you think of like the gods of olympus those are, are flawed beings exactly. uh, it's also uh gene roddenberry's very uh open thesis about faith and religion mm. uh he was uh very much like a, an anti-religious uh, person, like mm. a, a com, you know, like godless communist, going way back. And I, I say that descriptively, not not judgmentally. Yeah. Uh, and I think what he wanted to have Next Generation be very much about is uh, a post-religious world. And we've yeah. talked about this about the original series, how uh, back in the '60s they pitched, oh, how about we have a Chaplin character on? And Gene Roddenberry said, no, no Chaplin. This is this post-religious world, but they're, it's the 60s. They were a lot of limitations. They couldn't have episodes explicitly about how this was a post-religious world. Because mm. uh, that here, to be implied through, implied through absence. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. here, I think Gene Roddenberry is being a little bit more explicit. Here's yeah. God. He's on the show, and humanity is saying, we're past you. Yeah. We don't need... God, yeah. this the Nietzsche thing. God is dead to us now. Mm-hmm. We don't need gods anymore. Even and if I've, God was real, yeah. we would God, be God, Yeah, you're, you're real, but we don't need to worship you. And I, yeah. I feel like, uh, as the show's plural would go on, they actually had a lot more complex, nuanced conversations about faith and the place of religion and, yeah. and society. But I think Gene Roddenberry was trying to say something very explicit here about atheism. Yeah. Uh, uh, the plot of the episode really kicks in. It takes a while, actually, mm-hmm. but like towards the second half of the episode... Picard agrees to a test. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, hey, instead of just judging us for shit that no one here actually specifically did, uh, and you don't seem to have anything on us individually, give us a test. Mm-hmm. We will prove that humanity has evolved. And Q decides that Farpoint Station itself represents a perfectly decent test. Mm-hmm. Uh, one weird thing, and this is a minor thing, we haven't really talked about a lot of like the production stuff, and it's a little all over the place. Some stuff looks expensive, some stuff looks cheap. Mm. The scene where Picard is challenging Q mm. in the the uh, the courtroom. Uh-huh. 
there's all of these shots of Picard where there's a lot of darkness around the edges of the frame. Have you noticed that? It was really weird. He's like looking up a cue in his like weird, like, you know, crane chair or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Picard, like there's a whole bunch of like just black blur around the edge of the screen as oh, if it was like, um, as if it was like cutting him off. And for mm-hmm. a minute I thought to myself, cause yeah, I know, I know, was, I know we're talking about, I yeah. know there was a moment and I don't think this is true, but my, here was my, where my head went. There was a brief moment when they were working on developing the, the series that they wanted to put Picard in a toupee. They thought a bald man. <laughs> they thought a bald man could not be captain. To which apparently Gene Roddenberry was like, "No one's going to care in the 23rd century." Hair, and, yeah, hair doesn't yeah, matter. It's 23rd yeah. century, and, and it oh, doesn't and, matter uh, now. But like, and indeed, uh, yeah. they say. Uh, brief aside, um, they say 23rd century in in this episode. Yeah, which finally makes explicit when Star Trek takes place. Well, they're not in the movies they, already. Uh, a, a little bit. No, they did in the beginning of the, of the movie. They said in the early 23rd century or something like that. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. They, they started so, yeah, doing this, it in the movie for clarification, I think, for new Yeah, the, the original yeah. series was 22nd century. This is 23rd century. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so for a moment, I thought, what if they shot this scene with the toupee mm. and tried to crop it out as much as they could by like zooming in a bit and then like smearing the edge of the top of his head so you couldn't see the toupee? Mm. I don't think that's true. But I can't think of a reason why in God's name they would shoot it like this. It looks yeah. weird. There's um, The idea is Q comes in, he's the judge in this scene, and he's in that floating throne. And it's clearly just like on a big um, rig crane. on the yeah. back, so they're sort of just sort of feeding it into the room. Yeah. And they needed to use this kind of cheap special effect to hide the crane. Yeah. And it, maybe they had to do that haze just to... It's a close-up of Picard's a, a, face. Yeah, and that's not a wide. It's oh, a close up of Picard. It's we- I'll show it to you sometime. It's really right. really weird. Maybe just maybe I'm being like ultra right. detail, but anyway, maybe they were. But I was gonna say maybe they just wanted some visual continuity because they had this blur, so they added other places. I don't think so, it works, yeah. but okay. In any case, uh, Farpoint Station itself. Hmm. Farpoint Station is a space station that has been built very specifically to Starfleet to Starfleet's needs. Hmm. Very quickly, suspiciously quickly. By a planet that probably shouldn't have the resources to do that. Mm. So they're offering Starfleet the use of the space station in exchange for stuff. I don't know what's in it for them exactly. I guess favor. Because Starfleet well, they're, they're isn't offering t- money. Uh, exchanges goods, services. Yeah. Uh, yeah, being in the good graces of of the Federation. Yeah, they just sort of tap dance around that. I don't really talk yeah. about that. Um, and uh, some of the crew is already there. Crusher is there. LaForge is there. Riker is there. Uh, and there's a bit where Riker is talking to the leader of the people of this. What's the planet called? Um, oh, what is the planet called? I forget what it's called. The, the Fur Pointians. The Fur Pointians, uh, led by the the awesomely named Groppler Zorn. Uh, I I don't think Gro- I think Groppler is like his rank. I know, but it's still he's cool because like, they refer to him as the Groppler for a long time. I thought uh, the, uh, the, uh, the bendy people for a long time. I thought Peter Cushing's character in star star Wars was called Moff Tarkin mm. and grand was just his title. Okay. And it turns out grand Moff is the title and, and Tarkin, Tarkin is, is just his, his last name. And I was like that. You're just putting a hat on a hat at that point. Like why even do that? Okay. It's like but, a difference between like a, a lieutenant and a lieutenant commander. I understand yeah. that. But like one of those is a made up word and one of them isn't. So it's a, a little moff, weird. Yeah. Um, I it's, not, it's not important. I just find it a little distracting. Moff is a silly rank. So is Groppler. Groppler, yeah. Groppler Zorn. Yeah. So, sounds pretty silly. Yes. I used to be a Schmarnack, but, uh, but, now, <laughs> but I have, I have friends in high places. So now I'm Groppler Zorn. Uh, uh Grop, Groppler Zorn is played by an actor named Michael Bell is a well-known, um, 
Vo- he's done, done a lot of voice acting, yeah. and he invented like a water cleaning device, what? like that can like clean wa- like sewage huh. out of water. It's like a wow, a, yeah, an important uh, environmental. Good for you, invention. Buddy. Yeah, yeah, Michael Bell. Um, anyway, but he's very suspicious. And uh, there's a scene where Riker is coming to ask questions about Farpoint Station, questions which are evaded. Mm. And there's a part where Grappler Zorn says, oh, would you care for some fruit? We have earth fruit for you. And, and Riker's like, well, okay, I guess I could go for an apple. Oh, you don't have any apples. And uh, then they, I'm a little and, upset, but whatever. Yeah, and then, and then there's a shot again of the desk, and it used to just be one bowl of fruit, and now there's also a bowl of apples. And he's like, Suspicious. I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't see the apples there before. Well, apparently they were always there, weren't they, Riker? Certainly nothing suspicious is going on. You should leave so I can yell at the room for some reason. And Riker leaves, and other zone's like, I told you not to do that. Like yelling at the ceiling. What is going on at Farpoint Station? I remember seeing this when I was like four or five. Mm. And immediately thinking, oh, the space station is alive and making that stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, taking them a long time to figure this one out. <laughs> like the mystery of Farpoint Station. Yeah, it's, Admittedly, it's, it's weird. It yeah. is a weird thing. It's probably the sort of thing they would assume. But it's also not such a difficult like puzzle it's, that you, like you think is, like all uh, of humanity needs to ride on this and, one. And going back to what you said at the beginning of the episode, uh, it's a pilot's job to introduce a lot. You have to introduce yeah. the setting, all of the characters, the promise of things to come and also have a story in there. Yeah. The story is actually the weakest part of encounter at Farpoint because of that very reason. Yeah. The, the Q says, if you can figure out this grand mystery, maybe you'll have, you'll, you'll showing promise. You figure this out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a pretty easy mystery to figure I out, mean, it's, especially it, if you've watched any Star Trek before. It is weird mm-hmm. that they have converted this giant space uh, jellyfish. Yeah, basically, we'll we'll, we'll eventually see that the entire station is one singular life form that can shape change and can also like transform matter, can make things appear. And it wants to please. And it can also uh, like listen to what you're saying. Yeah. It's like, I, I wish... Uh, I, Dr. Crusher is looking at like a bolt of cloth. It's like, I wish they had it with gold and wouldn't you know it? The gold appears right on it. And um, so, yeah, and it's been trained to do these tricks. And it turns out it has not been trained uh, 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 peacefully. Peacefully. It's 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 actually been tortured. It's been like tortured Mm. and actually enslaved by the bandy people. So they're trying to figure out what's going on at Starpoint Station because all this shit is weird and they haven't put two and two together yet. Then a UFO, a proper UFO. Like a flying saucer. Yeah. Gig- uh, gigantic, even bigger yeah. than the Enterprise. Flies up to uh, to Farpoint Station and begins attacking, not Farpoint Station, the settlements around Farpoint Station. Mm-hmm. And the crew of the Enterprise has to decide what to do about that. And Q shows up and says, yes, you should attack them now. Yes, be humans. And I'm like, what are you doing? You kind of giving it away there, Q. It's like when it's like when Emperor Palpatine's like, "Yes, feel the hate flow through you. Kill your father." And Luke's like, "Well, I was gonna, and now I'm not going to because the most evil guy, the most evil-looking guy in the universe, has said he would like that. So what the fuck?" <laughs> You also, idiot! You almost had me. Also, the the, the emperor is like, ah, have you here? Join the dark side. It's like, what? 
what in any of these movies made you think I was going to join the dark side? Like, yeah. Luke has no, like, leanings he's, he's that way. He's kind of impetuous, but, like, that's about as far yeah. as he goes. And it's, and also, by the way, yes, join the dark side. We have empty throne rooms, and we all betray each other constantly. And I'm like, motherfucker, you could have put that out some like... food. Like, you could have been, yeah, you could have made this nice. <laughs> we have empty throne rooms and betray each other. Bro, what a party. Yeah, I'm yeah. really going to join the dark side yeah, now. This sounds great. What do you have, what, what's your uh, health plan? Uh, sometimes you burn alive and we turn you into an android that hurts all the time. Wait, wait. What the fuck? Why would I do this? <laughs> I, I learned this for me. I learned from uh, on on Red Letter Media. They went through like everything that Darth Vader suffers through on like a daily basis. It's awful. And, like like evidently like just in constant pain. Yeah. Like, in that robot suit. Yeah. What's anyway, what's in it for me? Why would I want that? Uh, there's no Darth Vader in Star Trek. Um, <laughs> well, there's the Borg. <laughs> they look a little Vadery once they take the helmet off. Fine. Yes. Fine. The <laughs> Borg and Darth Vader. Are the the Cyborgs. Sure. Well, they are. Uh, at, at what point do we learn that Darth Vader like has machine parts? Uh, Empire. Uh, Empire. Okay, so Empire f- is confirmed. F- first one where he's just a guy. Well, like, I mean, he's he's a guy in a suit, and you don't really know much about it. He does seem to have a breathing apparatus, but they don't get into it. Mm. And then in Empire, you get to see him with the helmet off, and you see that he's got like you know parts that are like oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, they I don't go into detail, again. but that's that's the one where they really okay. confirm it. But yeah, it's. Uh, as it turns out, and you can kind of figure this out pretty well, the flying saucer thing that's been attacking the settlements outside mm. of Farpoint Station is another one of these shape-shifting mm. jellyfish creatures. Yeah. And the Bic- space-faring uh, non-humanoid yeah. species. And Picard quickly realizes, partially thanks to Q encouraging him to do the exact opposite, mm. that uh, Farpoint Station and the the what, the, the Bandians... The Bandy. The yeah. Bandy uh, are... The bandy are the bad guys here. Yeah, they're not. They're not being attacked for no reason by some monster. They're actually the monsters. And, and, and indeed, uh, yeah. uh, Grappler Zorn is beamed up on board the the flying saucer, yeah. where he's being tortured. Yeah, yeah. Like, up. yeah. It's like floating in a. They find him floating in a beam of light, and he's screaming in pain. I, stop! I, stop killing me! I, I honestly the, can't say I. I, I blame those yeah, jellyfish and, at and all the, for that. The, yeah, the jellyfish is doing this as an act of uh, vengeance because yeah, yeah. we learned that uh, the. These two jellyfish creatures are uh, in, in love. They're in love. Uh, in yeah. in Picard's word, they are mates. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, that they assumed mates and not like one. What if one of them's the other one's child? All we know mm-hmm. is that they're closely emotionally connected. Yeah, uh, he just says the mate, and I, uh, I guess I guess Troy would have corrected him. Yeah, well, just she's feeling yeah, their feelings. She feels that yeah, the the flying saucer is really really angry. Uh, the uh, the station is very much in pain, and when they're finally back together, we have this. Mm kind of weird stupid scene where Troy's looking at the space jellyfish and saying I sense so much satisfaction it's like oh shut up it's a weird it's a weird fucking ending you got two giant space jellyfish in Um, love and Q is just like haha you have solved the riddle of the space jellyfish I guess humanity is fine for now and everyone's just (laughs) like great the space jellyfish thing a little weird, uh, yeah. in, in terms of story. I don't uh, mind weird. I like that it's weird. I like that oh, it's. Absolutely. I like that it's totally out there mm-hmm. and is actually doesn't really conform to a lot of the conventions of um, anything. Really, yeah, I yeah, like yeah. that the the aliens look weird. I like that uh, the plot is about not committing acts of violence. I like that it's actually a mission statement for the series. Uh, I think the mystery of Farpoint Station sucks. I think the actual mystery. Is to again, I figured it out when I was a very little kid, hmm. way before the characters. That's a problem, I think. I think you you just, I think you 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 showed your hand way too early. Hmm. Uh, but beyond that, 
I think it's a great episode of television. I do. I think hmm. uh, we get to meet all these characters, and so many of them are pretty fully formed. Like, yeah, I, I think Data's Data's on the, point. Yeah, the Riker's on point. The characters, you know? uh, like, they'll evolve a little bit. I think yeah. Picard has the most evolution. He's the one who sort of softens the most over the course of the mm. series. But I actually think that it's actually kind of good because he's, like, of, of all the characters, mm. it they become better people, but until, like, maybe the movies, at least, there isn't a lot of tr- opportunity for lasting character growth like they'll 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 learn a valuable lesson but if you watch the episodes out of order you wouldn't you couldn't tell them when they learned that lesson which was yeah considered good tv writing uh, at the time i'm Uh, not complaining but i'm just saying but these days now that you know the tv shows are all like gigantic stories that just keep on going so big changes can happen i think if you look at the path of next generation Mm. and you can see how like you know some characters fell in love fell out of love got together whatever like you know been through some hard shit, changed a bit, but like the character who changes the most and emerges kind of as the star of the series is Picard. And if you compare the pilot to the uh, series finale Mm -hmm. of next generation, which is, and I've been a while since I revisited it, but it's often called one of the best series finale in television. And I'm inclined to agree. It's it's really, really good. And but I think in fact, it's significant to bring it up because we'll actually have a flashback to this Exactly. exact time to the pilot. I agree. And I think that's significant because we get to see that the Picard who started the series is not the Picard who ended the series. Yeah, yeah. And that's very, very important. It also shows once again, that pilot, that uh, finale, uh, that Q just can't fucking help himself. <laughs> At the end of the last episode is him going to Picard. It's like, I'm going to have this one final test and like all of reality could be undone. And I'm just going to let you figure it out if you can. And then towards the end, it's just like, I'm going to explain all of this to you. Mm. Then what was the fucking point? You well, like Picard, like gets like right up to it. And he's like, okay, I, I, fi- I think I kind of figured it out. The Okay. Rather than painfully sit, you try to sit down and have you try to suss it out. I'll just explain it to you. Here's what's I, going on. I just, I, I get it. The audience mm. needs to know it needs to be clear, but sometimes, yeah. sometimes Q just is his own worst enemy. I think yeah. <laughs> it's just like, he I can't I, help himself. I still love the character. Oh, I love um, the character too. I just feel like yeah, sometimes he just, and Q will show yeah. up on deep space nine. He'll, fall in love with Captain Janeway, which is Oof, really weird. Um, so awkward. I, I don't like the, the Voyager episode. I remember, Q, I, remember I came back to Voyager specifically for the Q episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I watched it. I'm like, okay, I like the bit with the scarecrow. But other than that, no, this is, I don't like, yeah. I, don't, I don't think Q works with, with Janeway very well. No, I was, when you're setting forth like a new thesis about <sighs> next generation, Q's a great character. I just had a great, I, I don't know mm-hmm. if this has been done, but I kind of want to see an episode of Star Trek. Where, because you know, like Q is always visiting the captains. Mm-hmm. What if Q keeps visiting like an ensign? Oh, like just one random ensign, like Barkley or something, yeah, and like, no one no, believes not even him. Barkley, yeah. like just some totally new like recruit dude, mm-hmm. and nobody believes them, or they're afraid to tell anybody, <laughs> and it's just like he doesn't know if he's like lost his mind or she or whoever. Mm-hmm. But like you know, and like just but like Q is testing all of humanity from the person on the lowest rung of a ship <laughs> they, that would actually be kind of cool they, they kind of brush up against that on lower decks the animated mm. show um where it, it's about uh four ensigns mm-hmm. who like they don't even have quarters on their ship like it's such a shitty ship they essentially yeah. sleep in all they have like bunks on a hallway nice. they have like like a little locker where they keep all their stuff and they just get to sort of like walk through it like they have such lousy lives on this really bad ship and uh, like weird stuff is that's still a starship. Weird stuff is happening all the time. So it's like, okay, something really weird happening. Okay, checklist. Is it Q? No. Okay. Uh, like, <laughs> like, 
Like Q, Q is just part of protocol now. By the time we get down to these ensigns, I like, actually do like that though. Yeah, yeah, I like that with like um, because if you think about it, there's all of this stuff where it's like, oh, we've never seen anything like this. You have seen so many things like this. You have seen so many godlike aliens. You have seen so many weird spores. Like, how have you not? How can you pretend that this isn't just like a regular thing that you would at least assume? Like, ah, yeah, someone thought they saw the captain. The captain died earlier in the episode. And someone thought they saw him. Of course, they're crazy. You have seen so much weird shit. That, You're okay, telling that, me you can't think yeah, that that's and uh, Ensign Mariners is like, oh, look, your fl- oh, shapeshifter. Oh, well, yeah. Shapeshifters on board. Intruder Alluria. Yeah, I got a shapeshifter. Yeah. Okay, I'll just arrest him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I knew it. Zap. Yeah. But, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it, it's completely commonplace for that. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, but anyway, like, I'm sorry you didn't evolve into light. How dare you interrupt my evolve into light ceremony? <laughs> I was the enlightenment guy. Like that was my thing. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, so again, so those are my thoughts mm-hmm. on Far Point. I think again, the, the actual plot a little clunky, but it does everything it needs to do, and I think it's actually yeah, a really um, good, uh, kind of mind blowing kind of Star Trek mm-hmm. right? because it's it's, just, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't conform to expectation, and yet it does everything it needs mm-hmm. to do. Uh, something I do like about Next Generation, uh, right when it started off, was how procedural it was. I know that scares a lot of people off; mm-hmm. they want something a little bit more character driven, or maybe something a little bit more relatable. Yeah. Uh, the entire first season is going to be a lot more situation driven. It's going to be about the entire team encountering a situation mm-hmm. rather a than any protocol. yeah um but there are some episodes where characters are going to pair off and we get to see how they relate to one another um i think you'll really like an episode called the arsenal of freedom uh coming up where mm-hmm. uh, they beam down to a planet uh where there's like drones hunting them like flying okay. robot drones hunting them yeah uh where they get to do some character work, but uh, it's going to take a little while before we start to really zero in on the characters. Fair enough. Uh, but like, I, I didn't really get what, what are your actual thoughts on this as an episode and a pilot? Um, like what overall, yeah. overall, how does mm. encounter at far point? How does it hold up as a thing? It's dry. It's a little dry. Um, I like all of the characters and I think they did a wonderful job setting them all up. Um, there was a little bit linking material. We didn't mention this where Data oh. has a conversation with Dr. McCoy. I can't believe we forgot uh, about that. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Leonard McCoy. They got DeForest Kelly back, uh, but he's now incredibly elderly. He's 137 years old. And uh, he has just gotten more racist as time has passed. <laughs> like da- Data says something very logical. It's like, I don't see pointed ears on you, boy. <laughs> it's he like, calls him boy. He What's calls him boy. Fuck? Yeah, I know. Jesus fucking like, Christ, are you, are you? Do you have any Vulcan blood? No, I'm an android. Oh, that's almost as bad. Yeah, Jesus like, fucking so, God. Hate, hated Vulcans right up to the end. Or maybe he's still alive. We actually never hear about his death. He lives to be two, 237. He lives forever. Yeah. Damn it, he hates it. It's like, I knew I... Ah, whatever. E- anyway. Evil, hateful jerks live the longest. And ain't that the fucking truth. Uh, but it's actually, it's, it's actually like, it's a nice thought. Yeah. To have like that sort of passing of the torch and hmm. to have that moment between McCoy and not Picard, but Data, I think is actually kind of interesting. And I think that actually, I think it solidifies Data as the Spock of the show. Yeah. Uh, but I think it also solidifies Data as kind of the soul of the show. Because you got to remember that uh, whoever stood in opposition of the original series' crotchety racist asshole was hmm. automatically the hero. So data becomes automatically this new team is be like, well, if you know, bones can only like barely tolerate them. They must be pretty good. So there, 
Bo- bone, yeah, it's, it's this cute little uh, passing of the church moment. But, I'm glad we don't have to keep talking about bones for a while. But I, I, I feel I, like I, I feel like I'm, I'm, everyone is like, well, you're you're gonna get him back in the form of Dr. Kate Pulaski. Uh, I know. There, there's I a know. there. We got time. There, there was a, a bit of a conflict. Uh, Gates McFadden left the show for the entire second season, and they got a new chief medical officer played by D- Diana Muldar, who had been on several episodes of the original series. Yeah, good episodes uh, too as a character named Dr. Kate Pulaski, and she's essentially a Bones redox. Right, and of course, uh, uh, DeForest Kelly would return in a couple more movies, which we'll get to when we get to them. Yeah, we'll get to them. We're doing them in order, so there's going to be like at least a couple of seasons of uh, Star Trek Next Generation before we get to Star Trek V. Yeah. Um, So uh, so that's it for uh, the first episode of Star Trek Next Generation, and we will keep doing these (laughs) until... Well, for we another, burn another the fuck out se- seven damn seasons of this show yeah. and um yeah it's uh, like i said this is my favorite show i think it really starts peaking around seasons three and four mm-hmm. uh this is just as somebody who's seen them all however but um mm-hmm. most of that, the episodes that, that i recall vividly yeah. remember really really liking are the, later uh, in the series yeah if, if you're the type of person who uh says something like it doesn't get good until season blank Mm-hmm. Uh, you do have to explain why you watched up until that season. And I think yeah. Star Trek The Next Generation had a lot of promise right from its pilot. Mm-hmm. It has a really great new ship design, has a lot of, gr- a lot of great new characters. The dynamic was pretty well set. They yeah. thought this one out. Well, and, uh, and I feel like those ideas were enough to get you to... Like there are a lot of good episodes yeah. to, to sort of carry you through. I think you have a strong cast. I think that really, really helps. I think you have a strong, like sort of uh, ethos. Like there seems like it's solidified in its tone. I think yeah. that really, really helps, but there's like, there's actually a line we didn't talk. You insisted that we watch it and we didn't really talk about it in great detail other than his backstory, but there's a good moment. One of the writers uh, has of the show has in that documentary chaos on the bridge, which mm-hmm. is an hour long. It's an okay watch. They gloss over some stuff mm-hmm. real fast. They only talk it's about a, the casting of Picard and no one else. Uh, it's directed by Shatner. So yeah. it's a very, and Shatner, like Shatner trying to sort of put his own feelings about next generation. He's, into he's relief. trying to massage every conversation into the idea that this whole story is about power. And sometimes mm-hmm. the conversation makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. Also, he goes to bat for one of like, he's like, ah, yes, the showrunner and the second season is of course a great uh, showrunner. And I've worked with him many, many times. Uh, everyone else I've ever heard talk about this guy says he's an asshole. <laughs> like he's the one who got Gates McFadden fire. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, everyone was like, Oh, thank God he's gone. We can bring Gates back. Like, like, mm. like it's, it's his loyalties are very very clear but there's one of the writers I forget who that might have been Brandon Braga but someone said um, uh, if the show had never found its footing mm. if the show like didn't get better in seasons three and four would it have still been on the air for a while yeah mm. because it's Star Trek and it's what we had and it wasn't awful and people would have been fine with it but would it have had its own movies would it have had this enduring legacy would it have led to Deep Space Nine probably not Mm. So the ability of a show to earn enough goodwill to get good later is a rare treat. Yeah. There's so many and we do this on Cancel Too Soon all the time. There are so many shows that really have a lot of potential and could totally get there, but no one has the faith in them and they don't have enough audience to justify giving them more opportunities to, mm. to get there. I, and that's but, sad because mm-hmm. so, sometimes there's some really great stuff that we miss out on. Uh, I think it was Brennan Braga who talked about how was, yeah. Star, Star Trek would, would have continued. Uh, Brennan Braga would go on to be one of the more prolific writers on Next Generation. He's co-creator of Voyager. Um, he, 
I'm not sure if they date or if they actually married, but he was together with Jerry Ryan, who played Seven of Nine. I didn't know. Um, that. Uh, and he went on to do a lot of uh, great science mm-hmm. fiction. Besides, uh, he he did all of like the weird psychedelic episodes of Next Generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's Iris Stephen Bear, who is the showrunner on Deep Space Nine, who is the only one to confront Shatner in that documentary mm. about, uh, and th- this was very much about sort of conflicting what old world uh, Trekkies from the 60s and 70s would feel about this new one in the late 80s. And uh, Iris Stephen Bear actually asks asks Picard, asks Shatner right to his face, William Shatner, how did you feel about this? Mm-hmm. You, you, uh, you, you're such an egomaniac. He doesn't say he's an egomaniac to yeah. his face, but what, what was your pride like when they announced they're doing a new Star Trek show and they didn't want you at all? Like they didn't talk to you at all. And Shatner in like the most diplomatic way possible says, well, I was a, a little miffed that they didn't ask me. <laughs> he talked about it. He said, it, I actually kind of liked what he said. He said it was kind of like morning. You're like, yeah. oh, it's, oh, is that chapter over? Yeah. That's like, a shame. You know, like I, any, I don't get to be part of this. Yeah, anymore, and, I, and, yeah. I, and you know what? Even if you weren't an egomaniac, even because Shatner is known for having a big ego, yeah, I mean, egomaniac like, might be an ex, might be a stretch. So no, but he's it, yeah, he's, he's, he's known for having an ego. But like, even if he wasn't, mm. uh, I think anyone would be. Like, imagine if they rebooted X Files, mm. and I think that's only a matter of time before they just go back to square one on that because the mm. it has so much value, but they've kind of driven it into the sand at this point. <laughs> like, but like at some point, someone's going to yeah, do an X Files movie that has nothing to do with the original series, it's, completely it's, reboots. It's it. not Mulder or Scully; it's yeah. new characters, and it's yeah. just going to be and Gillian Anderson. You know, absolute the the I think more important to the series even than Mulder. You know, just and a brilliant actor, and she's just not asked to be involved. And Jillian Anderson just reads about it in Variety. And mm. I can imagine going, oh, that sucks. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, she might wish them well, mm. but it's like, well, that was, that was my yeah, show. And there, you know? there, there are some actors who get very, you know, attached to the parts they've become they known for. And uh, I know Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead in the Hellraiser movies. Yeah. Uh, they, they decided to make one without him. They didn't even ask him. Mm. And he got real mad yeah it's like no i'm the actor who plays pinhead in all of these i've been in some of the shittiest sequels are you yeah. kidding me i'll do it i, I, I yeah. agree like i wasn't i wasn't being precious about yeah, this but, at all so by the time they got to hellraiser revelation they mm. cast a different actor and he got really mad about that yeah so um a big part of next generation was trying to essentially prove itself as its own thing and prove to uh, Trekkies and to the world that Star Trek was larger than just the characters that you knew previously. And I feel like that's one of the biggest strengths of Next Generation is it didn't, it wasn't just about these three characters in an interesting setting. It was now about the setting. Mm. And the setting is so interesting and expansive and proved to have so much potential that it works. Mm. Uh, Real fast, just to Mm. clarify, uh, Doug Bradley was offered the role. In Hellraiser Revelations, oh, he uh, was, he okay. was, and uh, but he was offered like two weeks before they started making the movie, and the script was terrible, and the script, thought, the script was terrible. And they said, well, I actually <laughs> argue it's. I actually argue it's, some of the other ones were worse, but well, yeah, yeah, I suppose but so. like, but regardless, it was a bad situation, and like, I don't think they offered him like a very good deal or anything like that. So we just said, you know what, I'm not doing it. Mm. But that was that. Um, anyway. I digress. Uh, but yeah, so that's it for the Encounter of Farpoint. Uh, mm. we, we will be watching a lot of Trek 
for the no. rest of our uh, goddamn lives. Uh, this first season's going to be pretty rocky. There's okay. going to be some weird ideas that they don't go back to. Um, and then the next episode, they're essentially going to be remake like to establish their footing. They're remaking uh, an original series. Episode. I, have, I have strong opinions uh, about how they're gonna, about uh, this the, idea, but mm-hmm. I'm curious. I haven't seen this episode since the '80s, so we'll see how it. Yeah, how there, there was an uh, original series episode called "The Naked Time," where uh, the entire crew caught a virus that essentially like turned their the water in their body into alcohol, so they were yeah. drunk all the time. Yeah, and everyone was just uh, wandering around the mm-hmm. ship being violent or flirtatious or annoying or yeah, whatever. This was the one where uh, uh, Sulu was with, takes his shirt off and runs around with a fencing foil. Yeah. Uh, the one Irish the, the, guy the, the starts Irish singing guy, over yeah, the intercom gets, so no one can communicate because yeah. he's monopolizing I'll take you home again, Kathleen. Yeah, um, they're going to do that with the Next Generation crew. Um, and everybody on the ship is going to get drunk, including the android, bizarrely enough, including the teenager uh, oh. and... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't have kids on the ship. Mm. <laughs> See what I mean? Like it's dangerous yeah, yeah, out it's... here. What are you doing? <laughs> so yeah, this this uh, virus is uh, rampaging through the ship. We'll learn some things about the characters, but more than anything, it's just a rehash. Yeah, and I think we're going to get a lot of rehashes. There's uh, also the first episode of the original series was called "Where No Man Has Gone Before." We're also going to have an episode called "Where No One Has Gone Before," which mm. is not quite the same story, but you know, also mm. kind of a throwback. Right. They're they're really trying to appease fans of the first, of the original series. Well, we'll talk about that as as time goes on. But we'll get to that when we yeah. talk about the naked now. Uh, so thank you everybody for listening. Uh, this episode of uh, All Our Yesterdays. Forgot to mention this at the top. Uh, mm. This episode has actually been made available to everybody. That's right. Uh, uh, Trek we- is ordinarily part of our Patreon, but uh, yeah, we wanted to. Whet your appetite for more next generation. Well, we wanted we wanted to share because like you know we do so many episodes of this show and we know like a lot of our patrons really enjoy it and uh, we do want to make sure people know like what's out there and maybe what they're mm. missing. So um, every episode of uh, all our yesterdays uh, is available on our Patreon mm. right now and that's uh, a backlog of well over one hundred episodes of this podcast. We've done all the original series, we've done all of the animated series. Uh, and we've done four of the movies so far, and our goal is to get through every single track ever, and that's a long journey, but we're we're humming along and we're mm-hmm. doing pretty good. Um, so if you want to if you want to follow along our trek through all of Star Trek, uh, head on over to Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, we have a lot of tiers uh, for a variety of uh, different uh, with a lot of variety of different perks. Uh, every patron gets to vote for future episodes of our shows. Uh, but we also have uh, shows dedicated to Batman, shows dedicated to the Academy Awards, shows dedicated to track, commentary tracks. We do uh, hangouts with our with our uh, uh, patrons. Uh, there's a lot there. And, uh, and again, for the $10 a month uh, club, you get uh, one episode of Star Trek every single week mm-hmm. with uh, me and Whitney. Uh, and uh, we try to give every single episode of Trek uh, the full treatment. Which these mm-hmm. aren't like five-minute podcasts. These are like full-size uh, full analysis of everything that we we see, mm. and uh, we are not, you know, we're not the most dedicated fan persons that we think just everything is amazing. We will be critical when then the time comes, and mm. sometimes that means saying controversial things like, uh, like "City on the Edge of Forever" isn't that great. <laughs> I've said that before. People give me a lot of crap for it, but anyway. Mm. Uh, but anyway, so that's over at the Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, if you want to talk about anything on this episode or anything else we discussed, um, or anything at all, really, you can always email us. Our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at critically acclaimed.net. 
Uh, we also uh, uh, have a P.O. Box. Whitney, what's our P.O. Box? Uh, yeah, write us to uh, the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. You can mail us like a real letter or something. Yeah. We're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And every single episode of All Our Yesterdays ends with Whitney mm-hmm. giving a classic Star Trek quote. Whitney? What you got for us? Uh, well, I've I've done this one before, but this is a this is a Q quote, so I'm just going to give it to you. Okay, usually I get but, uh, but this yeah. is a, um, I'm going to guess Q. If if you can't, it's significant though to the you know, the pilot to next generation. If you can't take a little bloody nose, maybe you ought to go back home and crawl under your bed. It's not safe out here. It's wondrous, with treasures to satiate desires both subtle and gross, but it's not for the timid. So you can kind of hear Neelix saying that, but anyway. <laughs>